Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, July 18, 843-661-0937. Our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Uh, I, I meant to touch on this yesterday, and we did not. I, I want to go back over this. This is kind of an interesting um, nugget, and uh, I mean, it doesn't pertain to politics. It pertains to life in general. We, The three of us get up earlier than the overwhelming majority of Americans. I mean, you know, there there are others. You pass people on the road on the way to work. I pass people on the road on the way to work. Um, but there's new there, there's new data, and I've always been curious about this. Um, what 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 is Microsoft Triple Peak? Anybody ever heard of that? Microsoft Triple Peak. Microsoft is tracking all the digital data and information available in their commercial programs. And they're finding now that the three busiest times work are done. I mean, think of this for a second, guys. Here's what led me down the road. Um, I read in, I uh, might've been on ESPN, might've been NBC Sports, NBC Sports. I read an article a couple of weeks back that there were more rounds of golf. Golf's in decline, had a bit of a, um, a recovery during COVID because it's outdoors and people, we're not um, commanded not to play um, nine holes of golf, probably because some of the lawmakers like golf. Um, that's probably the one <laughs> advantage, you know. Um, well, there's that. Some of the prestigious members of our society probably are inclined to like a round of golf, so they didn't take golf off the table. But the most popular time, no, nah, that's not fair. The 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 largest up uptick in the number of rounds golf played during the day was four thirty. Stick with me for a second. So you got more golf being played at 4.30 in the afternoon. You got more gym cards being scanned between 4 and 4.30 in the afternoon. There's been a big increase in the last 10 or 15 years in the number of people playing golf at 4 or 4.30, not at the office. Uh, the number of people at the gym at 4 or 4.30, not at the office. Um, so, so is worker productivity in that much decline? No. Here's what's happening. You ready? Microsoft has coined the phrase triple peak. The reason they're saying it's triple peak, there is more work being done on the nation's internet from 9 until 12 in the morning, from 1 until 3 in the afternoon, and from 9 until at night. Hmm. Hmm. That's kind of interesting to me. Mm. We're, uh, you know, 9 to 5, uh, 8 to 6, 9 to 6, um, you know, whatever your hours are, 7 to 4.30, um, a lot of blue collar, seven to four, seven uh, to three thirty. So some of the um, some of the manufacturing what's left around here um, starts work at seven. You know, get off at three thirty. Sometimes four, sometimes four thirty, depending on um, you know what sort of hours there are, how busy you are at work. But Microsoft has done a deep dive, and they played off this fact that there are more rounds of golf being played at about four thirty in the afternoon than ever has been before. And I'm talking about proportionally. I would imagine there's been a time in American history that more people were playing golf. But, but you know, as a percentage, there are a higher percentage. There you go. A higher percentage of rounds of golf played but at, at around 4, 430. Um, more gym cards scanned. That means they're not at work. But they're not, not doing their job. But I mean, they're going to the gym. They're playing around to golf. They get back home. Uh, Are you they, saying they're working again later at night? Working a lot says? later at night. Okay. Working a great deal later at night. Um, that's just kind of interesting to me. 
um, 9 to 12, people get to work. They kind of get themselves in gear. Um, they work hard from 9 to 12, and I don't know what they're doing. Uh, you know, but Microsoft tracks a lot of this data, and they've, they've said it's the triple peak. And by 4 o'clock in the afternoon, um, the workforce in general are a little bit taxed, right? I mean, if you get there at 8, you kind of get going at about 8.30 or 9. Um, you, you, you just you, you, you drive it. I mean, you, you, you just you, you kill it from 9 to 12. You go get you a sandwich for lunch. You come back. You're in high gear from 1 to 3, and you kind of hit this wall. Everybody doesn't have the luxury of having a partnership with, with Pepsi and Celsius. So you hit this wall, and, ah, man, I'm just I'm lethargic. I don't feel like doing the work. I, I, you know, I'm a little bit tired here. I'm going to play a round of golf. I'm going to, I mean, there are other things people do. I'm not saying everybody leaves the office every day at four, grabs their golf clubs or gym bag, and off to the golf course or gym bag they go. But people are choosing, and I guess employees or employers are allowing people to make that decision, um, you know, leaving work at four o'clock, going to the gym, leaving work. I mean, we're different because we start a lot earlier than most. Um, you know, I don't have any guilt at all when I go to the gym at four o'clock. In fact, that's the time of the day that I normally um, go to the gym. So I don't have any guilt at all because, I, you know, I'm on the job at five. So that's a pretty long day uh, in general. But, um, but, but now people who have um, these settled jobs, these jobs that require them to be in an office, be in a cubicle, um, be somewhere at a certain um, time, they're deciding that about four, I guess they're working in concert with their boss, right? I mean, I doubt you're leaving to go to the gym or play golf three days a week, and your golf. I mean, excuse me, your your uh, your your supervisor doesn't know about it. <laughs> I mean, if you are good for you, but um, but the majority of deals have been made. I think employee employer, okay, but but you got to get it done now. I mean, hey, hey Rev, I'll get it done, but but I'm beat, man. I mean, I need to go to the gym. I need to play around the guy. I need to do something to clear my head. I I run I run to this wall every day at about four o'clock. I don't know how. I mean, Microsoft is not tracking worker productivity. They're just tracking the number of people who are online and doing work. And, and you know, Microsoft would be a little bit different than um, than uh, the internet, right? I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, right. would, I mean, they, they, they've got these search engines and all that thing. But I, I think what they're doing is tracking the number of people they suspect um, to be doing work. It, it kind of reminded well, me. Well, they run like their their Microsoft Teams system would know sure. if there's there's online meetings or. Outlook and appointments. Outlook and, and team are the words they used. Yeah. Now, now you would know much better or a bit more about that um, than I would. But but it's kind of an interesting. I mean, when when I was a partner in a business and we had some commercial property and we courted Starbucks and we talked about their strategy and I'm curious, so I asked one of the I'm um, not a high ranking official at Starbucks. He wasn't Howard Schultz, but it's one of these guys who decides you know where to put a Starbucks, what what they estimate revenue to be. Um, you know, how big a space they need, what sort of deal, triple net lease and whatnot they're willing to make. And he said that their their strategy was basically third place. Uh, we've talked a little bit about that. And I said, third place? Who wants to be in third place? <laughs> I mean, that's the bronze medal, man. Who, you want to win the gold and silver? And he said, nah, when you don't have to be at work and don't want to be at home, what, what, where's the third place you are inclined to go and meet your friend or meet, you know, do some computer work, do some some homework if you're a student. Do some uh, some pay work if you're a um, an employee. And Starbucks had kind of garnered, um, I don't know, that that was a lot of their business model. Third place. Don't have to be home. Don't want to be at work. Excuse me, don't have to be at work. 
don't want to be at home, where is the third place that I'd like to be? And Starbucks created this or tried to create this environment that was encouraging for people to sit there, you know, ear pods. Am I right? In yeah. called ear pods? Ear pods in, headset on, whatever, uh, doing some work, watching YouTube, whatever it is you choose, you choose to do. But I just think that's interesting that, that employers are okay with employees leaving work at about four in the afternoon to go do their thing. And, and, you know, the only reason I guess golf courses or excuse me, rounds of golf and, and gym memberships, that's probably pretty easy to track. I mean, you know, it would be easy to see an increase in the number of people playing golf or the increase in the number of people going to the gym. Um, you know, you work nine to five or eight to five or seven to four thirty. When you get off work, you go to the gym, you're done with work. I mean, you go home. But if you get off work at 6 and you leave for the gym at 4, you kind of sort of owe the company another couple of hours, and the company seems to be okay with you not doing it from 4 to 6 because they don't believe they're getting productivity out of you. They think you're going to the gym, going to the golf course, getting a good meal, getting the kids to bed, and, and then at about 9 or so, you know, you, you kind of tell the, the, the wife or the wife tells the husband, hey, I got about an hour and a half's worth of stuff I need to really – I can relate to that. I mean, I, really and truly, I can kind of see – um, some of that. I am more inspired to work after I go to the gym. In other words, the the hour and a half before I go to the gym, I'm nowhere near as productive in researching things to talk about on the radio show, like rounds of golf and, and gym memberships, <laughs> as I am after I get back from the gym. Go to the gym, get a meal, you know, sit down, uh, take a shot with the gym, get me a meal, sit down behind a computer. It seems to me I am uh, more apt to be productive. I mean, you're nodding your head. Did you, you, I mean, do you do any of that? I, Josh, I do you do any of that? I mean, chi- chime in No, it, it makes sense. And now, I, I, you know, we've had this discussion before, too. I don't work out like I, I should and need to and like you you preach about, and you're right. It's my fault. But when I have, I always feel much better. I mean, you leave that gym just feeling great and ready to you know, kind of take on the world. It's You've yeah. done good for your body. So I believe 100% what you're saying. Well, I mean, here's what I believe. And, I mean, you know, I've heard and read a lot about this. That there are, I mean, health is wealth. I mean, health is wealth. As you get older, in particular, I mean, when you're younger, and I don't want to go down this road. Well, I mean, when you're younger, you get away with a lot of bad habits. I mean, you can metabolism. I mean, the body, com- I mean, you just, I mean, the, the way the body responds, it reacts and recovers. I mean, you get away with a lot of things when you're younger that you can't when you're when you're older. But but I think when you look at the amount of money you have in the bank, I mean, that's what we. The majority of Americans consider wealth. You know, um, I've got no money in the bank. I'm broke and poor. I'm not wealthy. I got a million dollars in the bank. Everything's paid for. I'm cash flowing. Got a good job. Got good income. Um, but, but you know, I think at some point in time in our lives, we understand that, you know, we only get one body and it's our responsibility to take care of that body. And that is a version of wealth as far as I'm concerned. And uh, And once again, when you're younger, you don't seem to pay much attention to it because you can get away with so much because the body, when, when my son, the one that had all these problems with his leg born with a, um, you know, a deformity of the, uh, of the right leg, we, um, we surgically and laser broke the leg and then we created, uh, via external fixators, kind of a space between the bone. In other words, I would turn a set screw, uh, early in the morning at lunch and then that night and it would pull I mean, it will lengthen the leg. Well, I mean, you know, we, we severed the bone. You can't stretch bone. You can stretch ligaments and tendons and all these other sorts of things. But the doctor would show us 
I mean, that, back then it would have been kind of an X-ray. It might have been an MRA at some point in time, um, but but it would show that bone trying to grow back together. I mean, it, it was like fingers trying to reach back to other fingers. And I remember the doctor say, or the doctor saying that you know, being 12, 13, 14 years old, his body will repair itself uh, a thousand times quicker than you or I would. And the doctor was, you know, probably in his 40s. I'm probably in my 40s at the time. And he said, and as you get older the body is less inclined uh, to repair itself. So uh, I don't know. You you may be interested in that. You may not be. But I was thinking about how many of you out there ascribe to that same uh, sort of work schedule. You know, do you feel like you're a better employee? Because I can see my dad going, hell no, hell no. I mean, don't you you let anybody leave here and go to the gym or go to play around to golf. But dad, the data clearly, I don't care. That's not the way we do things around here. You know, the, um, the conventional way mm-hmm. of thinking, no, it's a new world. no we, we, we work from seven to five here. We work from seven to four 30 and, um, and that's the way it's going to always, but dad, we're, we're getting more done from nine to 12. We're getting a good bit done from one to three, from four, from, from, from three to five, our employees seem to hit a wall and our productivity and we didn't track it that way. Cause we were manufacturing in a town with no stoplight, but I mean, if we were, trying to in some sort of sophisticated way understand what makes our workers mo- more productive i mean i i, I kind of buy into this i mean i really do and i buy into it because i can personally relate to it if if i go to the gym at four o'clock in the afternoon if i try to do prep for a radio show an hour before i go to the gym i, I just don't i mean I, I'm, I'm a little bit foggy i'm a little bit i don't want to do this i mean i just don't feel good about it i'm Plundering around, not real motivated. But if I go to that gym, stay there an hour and a half, two hours, get me a good shower, get me a good workout, uh, get home, get something to eat, sit down behind that computer, I'm ready to roll. And it may be 8 o'clock. I mean, it may be from 8 until 9.30. But, but it seems like I am really, really up for the task, motivated, and um, I ca- kind of in lockstep with what my, what my job requires of me to do. 843, so Microsoft Triple Peak. If someone says, what is Microsoft triple peak? It is uh, most work getting done from 9 until 12, 1 until 3, and again, 9 p.m. until. Until when? Until you finish, I guess. You know, some people are night owls. You know, and, and I would imagine, Rev, there are some people who get the kids down, you know, at 10, you know, sit behind a computer and forward from 10 until 11.30, 10 until 12, get done what they, you know, didn't get done uh, from four until six of the afternoon. And there's kind of an- another advantage here. You know, the more people go to the gym, the more people, I think the better the country is, the more people actively outdoors playing around the golf, uh, probably the better off we are. But you got to get your stuff done, right? I mean, it doesn't matter when you, you get it done. I mean, if you've got a job and it requires this to be accomplished, you've certainly got to get um, that done for the company and the boss man, as we like to say. 843 so Josh, you want to jump in here? Yeah, I just wanted to say, kind sure. kind of in a similar vein. I don't know about breaking up the you know time into two parts. I've n- never tried that before. But when I was working at WBT, my hours were from three to nine, and I've never had better sleep and like time management in my life. So like, from three in the afternoon until nine p.m. Yes, that was your hours. That was my hours. Okay, and I would get off at nine, be home by nine thirty, and be fast asleep by ten. And I've never done that before. Like, if if it's the weekend, I'm up till, like, 2 in the morning. And I don't even like doing that anymore, but I just do because it's, like, a habit. 
But when I was working there and doing that kind of shift, it was so much easier to, and like, I felt good. I was waking up naturally without an alarm at like five and six in the morning. It felt great. Josh, Josh, a six hour workday? Well, it was part-time. Okay. I got you. Very nice. But I was doing two part-time jobs. Oh. And the first one I did remotely in the mornings. Gotcha. Yeah. I see. The price you pay to be a radio star. Right? <laughs> exactly. Right? Everybody exactly. didn't start on top like yours truly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? I'm just curious about the six-hour workday. That's all I want to know. Right. Okay. okay. <laughs> 843-661-0937. But, but you're right. The price of being a, a radio star, right? Yeah. Chase it a dream. That's right. We'll take a break. We'll be back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. See, you've got me thinking again now about my lack of exercise and working out. Every time, and, and I brought it up, okay, I brought it up about myself, but I just don't, I just haven't committed. I know I feel, I know it's good for me and it's important, and I know I feel better after I leave a workout. You've never convinced yourself it's not an extracurricular. That's what most people True. treat exercise as. It is an extracurricular. Guess what people do about extracurriculars? They make it optional. Uh, about 15, and I'm no better than anybody else. I mean, I, you know, I can get real uh, obsessive about things. But, but when my father passed away in 2004, I made my mind up that I was not going to die of a massive heart attack unless uh, it was because of the, the genetic you know, defect I inherited um, from him. But... But I read a lot about it. And, Rev, what I did, I just made my mind up that my exercise was a part of my job. It's a part of my existence. It's not an extracurricular. Um, when I'm exercising, I'm working because I do believe it makes me a better husband. It makes me a better father. It makes me a better employee. It makes me a better employer. It makes me a better business partner. It makes me a better person, period. And um, and I just think that people who treat exercise as an extracurricular will always figure out a way about 25 or 30 or 40 or 50 percent of the time to not do it i think you've got to commit yourself to saying this is a part of who i am this is a part of what i do and, and it's like paying the house payment it's like you know loving the kids it's like you know um getting proper nourishment it's just it, it's essential to my existence and it has to be taken care of and i have to do it consistently you pay the power bill you pay the house payment uh, because you know they have to be done. You don't believe that exercise is that important. You, I mean, you believe it's that important, but you've not been able to make that commitment to make it not optional, but rather an essential part of who you are. It's as important to me as as loving my wife, as as caring for my kids, as being a good uh, radio show host, as you know, being a good business partner. I mean, I'm not saying it should be. But that's the only way I could totally dedicate myself. And I'll say this, and I've said it before, the return on that investment is probably better than any return I've ever received on any investment I've ever made. Let's go to the phone. That's a great uh, way to think about it. Hey, Breeze, good morning. You're on. Excuses are persistent. I'm sick and tired of hearing them. Get your butt to the damn jail day. I hear you. You're right. No, seriously. I mean, it really is. I mean, everybody comes up with every excuse in the book. I'm too busy. I don't have enough money. And just like Ken said, I said, I guarantee you the money you spend on a, on a street coach or a personal trainer will give you far greater dividends than the money you spend going out to dinner that night and taking in a 1,500-calorie dinner or something like that. But uh, and at the same time, you 
same way. I mean, anything that's come out since 1900, you better not eat. I, you know, so I think they're poisonous with our food. You know, we're lazy. We get 30, 40, 50, 100 pounds overweight, and then they keep you alive with uh, surgeries and pills and medicine. I mean, everybody you talk to, they, they, they never say, eat better, exercise more. They go to the doctor and say, I need, sir, I need a DD. My shoulder hurts. I need a new shoulder. I got high blood pressure. I need pills. I got high cholesterol. I need pills. I got, you know, you see where it goes? So they keep you alive, take all your money, keep you alive for another 10 or 15 years with a bunch of drugs and everything. Because, see, there's no real money in nutrition and exercise for the, for the pharmaceutical companies. And, of course, when you're dead, there's no real money. So they got to keep you alive long enough to take all of your damn money. And that's just how the whole scam works. And there's scam after scam after scam. And we're just the guinea pigs being, being played the whole time, man. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. I mean, hypothetically play this out. What if Americans, what if 70% of Americans, uh, what if 62% of Americans were taking no medication instead of 62% of Americans being clinically obese? I mean, what would the, what would the happy meter? Think about the, the wrong track, right track, the disapproval ratings. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're struggling with your health, and I want to be careful here. I don't want to be insulting to anybody, and I've tried to. I don't think I've ever, I mean, maybe I've unintentionally been insulting to people who don't take wellness and fitness and, and you know, health seriously. I've never, I've never tried to. I mean, maybe it happens um, because it's, it's kind of a, um, I mean, it's a matter-of-fact issue. I mean, either you're taking good care of yourself or you're not. And I'm not talking about the person diagnosed with cancer. You know, the, I mean, the, 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 there are there are enough health problems that will find you without creating soil conditions that, that make it more conducive. Um, but what if America, I mean, this is a hypothetical, what if America were 60, what if 62% of Americans were on no prescribed medication and 62% of Americans um, were not clinically obese? I mean, what would the, what would the right track, wrong track number look like? What would the job approval of the president and the body politic look? What would America in general look like if we inverted those numbers from 62% of Americans being clinically obese to 62% of Americans, you know, taking no medications, no prescription drugs. We're taking a multivitamin. We're taking a baby aspirin, a low-dose aspirin a day, something like that. Um, You know, 70% of Americans were walking an hour a day, three days a week, four days a week. I mean, what would America look like? What would we feel like? What would um what sort of inspiration would we have uh, to get involved? How tolerant would we be of big pharma or the healthcare communities? And um, I mean, I'm you know once again, we meet them where they are, and they meet us where where they are. But I mean, there's a reason that in America, um, you know, the big pharma is allowed to market directly to the consumer. We need a lot of that stuff: high blood pressure medicine, cholesterol uh, medicine, this medicine, and that medicine. And those are tremendous profit centers. So, so, you know, really and truly, Big Pharma would rather you not go to the gym. Big Pharma would rather you not eat seed wee sandwiches. I mean, they'd rather you fry some of those uh, most abundant bird on the planet, right? I mean, the chicken <laughs> is the most abundant bird on the planet. But what would America look like? We learned that yesterday in yeah, trivia. And, uh, you know, the, the chicken is the most populous bird on all of the planet. Um, but but and, I, and I'm not saying this in any way. Shape, form, shape, way, or form to be judgmental, but but what if America took its health and well-being 
more seriously. I mean, what 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 would the what would the profitability of hospitals be? How much influence would Big Pharma really have if if Big Pharma makes this you know latest greatest cholesterol medicine, but seventy percent of Americans have a very manageable cholesterol range? I mean, what does the country look like? Who benefits? I mean, do we all benefit? Don't we? I mean, doesn't doesn't our health and well being? I mean, of course, no no question about it. I got a buddy of mine. He he said twenty years ago, ah, uh, fifteen years ago. The reason uh, we're, we're miserable is we're big and fat and we're not healthy. I mean, he, he would always preach that. And this would have been uh, 20, I mean, I got to let the Lieutenant Governor 2010. This would have been in 2008, 15 years ago. And we would talk about things in general. And he was the one that always said the biggest problem with America is we're so damn big. You know, the, the average weight of an American woman today is what the average weight of an American male was in 1960 and and i don't want to go through grip strength and you know i mean I, i've read a lot about grip strength and uh the amount of time a uh a 25 year old male can dead hang you know just hang from that's kind of a, a pretty good barometer of, of grip strength and strength overall in your core how long can you grab and in our case it would have been the the bottom tier in the back of barn um <laughs> and just hang there you know can you hang there three minutes or four minutes or five minutes. So, but that's kind of a, um, but, but some of those metrics and measures of women are, are, you know, women now have as much grip, well, they weigh as much, they have as much grip strength as a man does. I mean, we're just, I'm not saying we're slobs on average. I mean, I'm not arguing that, but we could do so much better at taking care of ourselves. And I think there's exponential benefit if we did so. Let's go to the phone. Bill in Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, Bill. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Ken, so back in the day, I had a doctor tell me, I'm, I'm 53 years old. I hit the gym pretty regularly, three, four times a week. I try anyway, given my work schedule. But I had a doctor tell me one time that we have a health industry that don't care about our food and a food industry that don't care about our health. And that, that resonated with me from day one, and that's what made me start going to the gym and quit eating all these crackers and all that crap down the plastic aisle. So, you know, maybe that's something that your listeners can keep in mind. You know what I mean? Sure. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. And um, good job hitting the gym at 53 years old. The the older you get, I'm telling you, uh, the harder it is to keep the warranty intact. I can um, <laughs> I can certainly relate to that. I, I don't want to make this about health and wellness. And we talked about baseball yesterday morning and Otani and is he worth um, double? But but I mean, you know, I do believe that one of the um, one of the central issues in America today is our general health. How healthy are we, the people? How much impact or effect does that have negatively on the uh, the future of of uh, the country? Childhood obesity is rampant. I mean, there, there are a lot of other things that we could go down the road of. Um, you know, athletic trainers. You know, some people. I don't have the money. Well, you went to you know you spent ninety bucks at Ruth's Chris two nights ago on a nice. I mean, you should. I mean, more power to you. I mean, have a big time. Enjoy yourself. But I'm telling you, you can have a better time. And, and a more enjoyable time if you are taking better care of yourself. 843-661-0937 is our number. I had a couple of phone calls. Yeah, I don't okay. know if we're having trouble with the phone, but uh, I, can't, I see. No, no, we're not having trouble having with the phone. A, we never have trouble with the yeah. phone. What's going on no, now, Josh? I, mean, not, not this I call see the phone's ringing, show. but never. Uh, it's the same couple people, and I pick up, and I don't hear anything. Okay. Oh. Well, we're having phone oh. call. Yeah, keep trying. Um, but, do, but do you say hello? That's when you pick that up? dependable phone provider <laughs> that we have a relationship with, right? 
<laughs> That's right. Right? Yeah, here Come we go We're again. hosting an early morning radio show, depending on the phones to work, and about once a week, they just don't work right, I think as, made, um, as they should. I think he's made the connection okay, now. We've made so. the connection? Yeah. Are we Are we waiting with bated breath as to who yeah, as his next caller is? All right, yeah. Okay. See if uh, Will can hear us. Hey, Will, you there? I'm here. Okay. You're on the air. Uh, we was talking about health and everything like that. I'm 71 years old. And every year on the 4th of July, I cut a backflip off a rope. And, uh. What do you mean you cut a backflip <laughs> off a purpose? rope? I do. On July the 4th, American Legion Post 60, we put on a fireworks show. And I cut a backflip off the rope every year. Good for you. For the last, last five years. So all these people that tell you that old age is crumbling and not nah, it's in how you stay in shape thank you my man appreciate it go. well and, and i've said this, what you're talking uh, about l- l- let's parlay this into another conversation or let, let's let's evolve this into another conversation i believe i mean josh may not rev may not a lot of you listeners may not i believe that the modern economy i'm talking about the economy we live in today is going to be very unpredictable and volatile and I think the best protection you can give yourself in financial independence is to stay healthy and go to work. Income is the greatest generator of wealth in the world. I mean, I understand you, you, your grandfather bought a piece of property in those Walmart. God bless you. You know, um, some of the companies that bought land around the coast, I mean, that generate, I get you. I get it. I mean, I understand. But those are anomalies. Those are outliers. The majority of our wealth, the majority of people listening to my voice today, the the best way for them to generate wealth is to go to work and earn, in, earn an income and not spend it all. I'm in essence, that's that's kind of like investing 101. Well, I believe that if you take good care of yourself, you're more likely to live longer. You're more likely to be capable and able to add whatever value to, to an enterprise, whether you own it, whether you're working for someone or not. And, and I, I just think that is, I mean, that that's the way I look at so it. So you're talking about growing the GDP for from being healthier. Well, I mean, I, no question about it. I mean, you're going to be more productive. You're going to be able to work longer. Um, but I'm, collectively. I, well, I'm, I'm just convinced. As a country. Well, I mean, yeah, no, no, individually and collectively. But but I believe this beyond a shadow of a doubt. And, and, and I guess I'm, you know, this is me putting my money where my mouth is. At times I don't. But this is me putting my money where my mouth is because of the job I do. And because of the work, work required, and by that I mean, you know, the overlap of economy and politics and government and, and the private sector, I believe that the rest of my life will be very hard to predict economically. I think we're living in a revolutionary area of, era of American politics. I think Trump is the beginning of the next 25 or 30 years, that that will kind of carry me to, to glory, <laughs> that, that that'll kind of finish me out. But if I'm fortunate enough to live 25 or 30 years, then, then I've done well. And I believe in those 25 and 30 years, it's going to be chaotic. And they're going to be, it's going to be very volatile. There's going to be a lot of ebbs and flows, wild swings in, in our economy. And, you know, the Fed does this and the government does that. And we're fighting globalism. And I just think there are going to be a lot of things that I can't control. But, but the one thing I can do is be healthy enough at 70 to go to work and be productive and earn a good paycheck. And, you know, if you're 70 and not healthy, the owner of that company may say, man, I love you. But, but you're breaking down on me. 
and you, you're not cognitively as sharp as you were. You're not physically as able as you once were. So, so, so when I think about, and this goes, I mean, I think we played a clip a couple of weeks back about longevity and exercise, longevity and, uh, and staying cognitively alert, cognitively aware and capable to, you know, do whatever it is the company you're working for or the company you own or require you to do. So, so mine is most selfish. I mean, it is to, I mean, I'm not trying out for the Green Bay Packers. And I'm not doing a you know a triathlon, but but or I climbing wanna, Mount Everest. But I mean, I, I kind of you know not not two videos spooked me a little bit. <laughs> you and were then, thinking about well, it. Well, then my insurance company had some issues. With, with, I bet they did with, with considering um doing that. But but I I just think that um I mean if you're if you're about my age, you, you need to understand that financial security is going to be far less predictable um than it normally is or normally has been. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD, good morning. Good morning. Well, um, I called to say, you know, uh, the habits that you make between 20 and 40 will determine what you do between 40 and 60, and the way you live between 40 and 60 will write the pages between 60 and 80. Amen. Um, it, it, it is just an inescapable fact. But what I was going to call about is I remember – I was actually going to brag on my dad a little bit. He is, I get on him all the time. He's 72 and he won't slow down. And he tore his bicep the other day fixing somebody's lawnmower for him because he tried to reach across and release the deck. And I mean, he's just, he's wide open. He goes, he fishes by himself on a 28 foot boat four days a week, he puts it in, takes it out. I mean, he don't care. He's going to go. And my grandfather was a lot that same way. But I remember this time when it snowed in Florence. My dad was going to pull my kids around on the four-wheeler on a little sled, you know. So he came tooling up on that four-wheeler wide open, and he cut it sideways so it would slide in that snow. Well, of course, snow in Florence isn't all nice and even, and he hit a dry patch. And he flipped the, the four-wheeler over, and I watched a 65-year-old man dive off a four-wheeler and do a barrel roll and stand up on his two feet flat. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, man, I want to be like that when I get older. <laughs> Thanks, Larry. Good to hear from you. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. DW in Florence. Good morning. Hey, guys. Go Tigers. Uh, I'll tell you something. I'm 68 years old. I still work from 7 to 6, five days a week, about 50 hours a week. And uh, you know, I attribute to being in decent shape most all of my life. And, you know, it's a place in like you're talking about, Ken. you got to go do this stuff and keep in some kind of shape but you also got to give your body a chance to rest and give it a time to uh, recoup and some people like to recoup a little longer than others so uh, i think that probably hurts them but also on this you know you got to give your body a chance to uh, get spiritually in shape 
know, too many people today have so many other struggles and tensions and all these other things going on in life that all they do is they go can push all this out of their body, they're going to be fine. But they need to get their life and their mind right. And your mind needs as much exercise, as much exercise as your body does. And your spirit needs as much exercise as the rest of you do. So I pray that people look at things at a, just not make things obsessive, but make it possessive. Do it because you need to do what's right for you, what's right for your body, and what's right for your mind and your spirit. So life will be a lot easier and it won't be such a struggle. So that's my two cents worth. Again, go Tigers, Gamecocks. Uh, okay. <laughs> Thank you, DW. The diplomatic soul, yeah. DW. Gamecocks. Um, okay. Yes. I, I'll say this. Um, I, I do believe in, in, in spiritual fulfillment and renourishment, and um, I am more inclined to be in touch with my spiritual self when my body is healthier. I mean, you know, I'm not saying it. Look, if I've got a business deal going bad and I go to the gym and get an hour's workout in, the business deal didn't get better. I mean, I, you know, rest assured, uh, if, if my partners and I have made an investment in a piece of property that we thought was a good investment and now we've come to conclude it's not, I mean, I go to the gym for an hour. It doesn't transform that property into a better <laughs> investment, but but it makes me more ready to deal with it, more able to deal with it, more capable to deal with it. And I do believe there is an absolute spiritual component to all of that. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. When you're standing trial and you know you're about to go before a judge at some point in time, why wouldn't you praise the judge, especially when you're a public figure? You know, the the, the great lady, Aline Cannon, um, I mean, she's got to make a decision here that I think will affect in some way, shape, or form presidential politics. American Civics Exchange CEO and founder, uh, GOP strategist Flip Padot is with us. Flip, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. How you doing? So with Trump heaping praise on someone other than himself, I mean, we find that a bit unusual, <laughs> to be honest with you. And I say that with all due respect, but he is, I mean, he is praising this judge that is going to be responsible for overseeing this classified document case. Um, what, what do we make of Trump? You know, um, tr tr I guess, um, <laughs> trying to get on the judge's good side. Yeah, that's right. In, in kind of a very Trumpy way, too, right? He's sort of saying all the nice things about her that he likes to hear about himself and that sort of curries favor <laughs> with himself, whether it's by, uh, you know, Democratic governor or overseas ruler, you know, anyone who says he's sort of nice and strong and loyal and great. He sort of feels that's, um, you know, enough of a rubber stamp that, that, that he uh, should return favors uh, in exchange. So maybe he feels that this is sort of a, you know, a little gift basket, uh, oratory gift basket to send the judge. Um, so I, but I think it reflects that he recognizes that this is a truly crucial decision. I mean, if, if she honors this motion to continue the trial, basically to punt it till after the election, uh, he knows he's effectively, you know, off the hook, at least on this particular indictment. Uh, whereas if it goes ahead in, say, December, you know, you could have the trial run its full course before the first votes are cast in Iowa. So one way or another, you know, whether whether it's effective. Uh, gift, gift basket or not, I think it, it reflects his recognition that this is going to be a truly critical, critical early decision in this case. And Flip, is there is it fair to say there are two sets of criteria here? I've argued that Trump could win a primary in a prison cell, but 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 having a very public trial about what he may or may not have done in December invites hyper scrutiny by independents, people that he, I mean, he has to have the support of is to be if he's to be successful in November of 2024. Is that kind of a fair analysis? I think it is, and it's so bifurcated, too, because you do have those two audiences. You have the independents, unpersuadable Democrats, less less 
of a concern to him, I think. We have persuadable independents, and then you have primary voting Republicans. So far, these things have only helped his standing and stature among Republican primary voters, at least based on the polling. But especially as it gets to actual trial phases or even convictions, that's presumably uh, going to pretty considerably hurt him among persuadable independents. So it may make his nomination more likely while making his electability in the general less likely. So yes, it's two, two different audiences, two different sets of criteria with totally different, potentially different outcomes. Okay. As a GOP strategist, I'm a former office holder in South Carolina, Republican. You can't win if you're not a Republican in good old red state, <laughs> South Carolina. But, but it seems to me, and I don't know that I can put my finger on it, Flip, but it seems to me that Trump is running a more disciplined campaign. I don't have, you know, this juxtaposed to that or this in contrast to that. But something in my gut, something instinctively tells me that there are people giving Trump advice and, and he seems to be heeding that advice and is running a more ah, normal campaign. You say what to that? I'd say that's true, although I'd say that the bar was very low to, to begin with. So certainly versus 16 when he was sort of just off the cuff, you know, say whatever came to his mind. The you know, was part of what built that brand that, that a lot of his now base really liked. Uh, there was less to lose. He also had less establishment support, less money in the bank, less of the national campaign machinery. Um, so I, I, I would say that's probably fair to say he's looking a bit more disciplined or buttoned up, perhaps. Maybe part of it is he sees he has such a lead that he figures, gosh, you know, if it's not broken, don't fix it. You know, I should sort of stay above the fray, stay out of it, maybe not be as uh, – uh, shoot as much from the hip uh, and, and take as many big swings. Um but uh, so, yes, the, some more disciplined thus far. But again, you see some some comments uh, and tweets or, or truths from him that that uh, uh, now and then do appear to be from the old, uh, you know, uh, Trump reservoir of, of perhaps less uh, less uh, focus group tested, disciplined, legally uh, uh, vetted uh, uh, wellspring as well. So. Yes, I think you're right, but again, I think the bar is low. But but I think he has an advantage in 2024. If he's the nominee and Biden's the nominee, that there's always been a strategy when you run against Trump, let Trump be Trump. I mean, he'll talk enough independents right. out of voting for him. I think he has an advantage here. Not Okay, you let Trump be Trump, and it cuts both ways. No question about it. Some people love the fact that he's unscripted and says things off the cuff. Others like, wow, man, I mean, a president can't say and do. But he's running against a guy who makes at least as many faux pas as he does. And that's Joe Biden. That's right. That's right. And I, and I think you're absolutely right in terms of the let Trump be Trump has worked not not strictly in his favor, but on net clearly in his favor. So I I think that will tend to be the dominant uh, battle plan. And yet, when you're talking about significant state and federal legal jeopardy, there's sort of a, a an additional few pitfalls <laughs> to that let Trump be Trump and just speak from the cuff. Uh, and so whether or not he can do it quite as uh, uh, enthusiastically this time around with these multiple investigations and trials looming, uh, or whether he finds himself a little bit more shackled to be a little bit more, you know, legally vetted in what he does and says. Very well uh, explained. You know, yet, yet to be seen. Flip, thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir. You bet. Thank you. And, um, you know, w when you look at some of what Trump has said about um, Judge Aline uh, Cannon, I think is her name, um, I'm proud to have, have appointed her. Uh, we need judges that love our country so they do the right thing. <laughs> some of the uh, some of the comments heaping praises uh, on judges. Uh, there, there's nothing good about Trump being on trial in December. I mean, they, uh, it's just not. I mean, you know, if he can delay this now, John Decker said last Thursday he didn't think that Aline Cannon has any leg to stand on 
This, I mean, it, it doesn't matter what she wants to do. I mean, she's going to have to allow this this trial to proceed. I don't think it hurts him at all in the Republican primary. I mean, it may a little bit. With um, I mean, I, I saw yesterday where there are five thousand people that have contributed about four million dollars in this cycle that gave to Trump in sixteen and twenty and are not giving to him in twenty four. DeSantis has gotten about two point two five million of that four million dollars. Um, Nikki Haley has got seven hundred fifty or eight hundred thousand dollars. Tim Scott and Vivek Ramaswamy have actually gotten a, a little bit of that money. Uh, but but there's been a kind of a. Uh, I mean, this would have been early on when you you thought you had this you know inevitable DeSantis Trump heavyweight fight of the Republican primary. Five thousand people contributed four million dollars. They didn't give to Trump in twenty in this election cycle. They instead gave to um to DeSantis Haley. Tim Scott got some of that money, but DeSantis, DeSantis got the majority. Haley got uh, the next largest amount. And, um, and you know, I don't know if that matters or not. Uh, the most interesting news yesterday to me was Brian Kemp sitting down with CNN. Mm. I missed that. Mm, did somebody say Brian Kemp? Has there some <laughs> hillbilly with a radio show been talking about <laughs> Brian Kemp a lot lately? Yeah, Kemp sat down with CNN yesterday and – uh, basically called on Donald Trump to be forward-thinking. I mean, those are his words. Be forward-thinking and don't, uh, he didn't say abandon the narrative, but don't spend as much time talking about these, um, you know, the, the, the claims about the 2020 election. Um, I mean, here's this quote. If he continues to do that, he's going to lose Georgia in November. There is no path. This is so interesting to me. There is no path to win the White House if we can't win Georgia. I mean, that's Kemp. Now, now once again, um, I've argued for six months that the, to me, the most intelligent choice to make on VP is Brian Kemp. I mean, I just thought about it. He's thought about well, it, I mean, and a lot of people have thought about no, it. No so question about it. You think it. this is a signal? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll continue. Okay. Kemp says because he's talking about this. Um. So Trump has legal peril in in Florida, but he also has uh, some in Georgia. You know, I need you to help me find these votes. And, you know, there, there's a, I don't think, I mean, I don't think he's going to, be, I mean, he's going to be indicted because it's a liberal Democrat, um, you know, district attorney. So they're going to indict Trump. I mean, her name is Fannie Willis. Brian Kemp is expressing frustration as to why it's taken so long to either indict or not. Um, he says, I mean, Kemp said on CNN yesterday, He's disappointed it's taken um, this long. But, but, but he, he says something that is so interesting to me. Um, uh, the, I don't know who, whoever on CNN is doing the interview um, kind of pushed him a little bit about um, him not going along with Trump's claims of electoral fraud. In other words, he, you know, Kemp didn't do what he wanted. Raffensperger, you know, I mean, you've heard the, the story. I remember. Um, but um, Kemp quotes, I mean, and here's the quote exactly. He was mad at me. I was mad at him. I told him exactly what I could and couldn't do when it came to the election, and I followed the Constitution and the law. And as I've said before, that's a lot bigger than Donald Trump. It's a lot bigger than me. It's a lot bigger than uh, the Republican Party. But I'm certainly supporting the nominee of the GOP. So, so, so Kemp's on the record. I mean, he makes no bones about it. He was mad at me. I was mad at him. But if he's the nominee... He has my full throttled and unabashed support. Now, um, I think it's interesting that Kemp says 
There is no path to win the White House if we can't win Georgia. He's exactly right. If the Republicans can't win Georgia, they're not going to win in some of these other places. And, and I still believe that Brian Kemp is far and away the best choice to run. Um, I mean, I'm thinking about Glenn Youngkin. You got to soften that edge, man. I mean, you got to think about independence. You don't think about um, Blaze Media and Tucker Carlson. That's not the real world. That's a very unique subset of the electorate. That's a passionate, I mean, it matters in the base. I mean, there is no doubt about it. In a primary, you can't, you know, neglect the base. And Trump has super served the base. And, you know, sitting down, uh, you know, winning, not even being in the building and, and getting 87% of the vote. I mean, that's his people. I mean, that there's a bond there that, that is unlike any I've ever seen in American politics and in modern American politics in, in particular. But you've got to expand that. You've got to reach out in places that, that don't know what's happening. They would, they would have a clue what Blaze Media is. Uh, they know Tucker probably as a guy who formerly lost his job. You know what I mean? He had this show, wouldn't shut up, and lost his job. Troublemaker, rabble rouser, you know, kind of a, um, uh, you know, just kind of an insurrectionist. He defended January 6th. I mean, that's what a lot of the public believe about Tucker. So, so you know, Tucker cuts both ways. Blaze Media cuts both ways. That event cuts both ways. Trump's got to expand that base. And I think the way he expands that base is to, you know, put Georgia on lockdown. I mean, it's electoral math. I mean, it's as simple as that. If I've got this, this, this purple state down south, that complicates everything. But if I don't have a purple state down south, and I can, I can just anchor myself in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Arizona, and Nevada, and then win, what, three? Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, win three of the five? You might win it with two of the five. But I, I just think that's the strategy moving forward. I don't think there's any question about it. I'm not saying announce today that Brian Kemp is going to be your running mate, but begin currying favor with Kemp. I mean, begin saying things very complimentary. Brian's right. I mean, I was mad at him. He was mad at me. I mean, it was a very complicated and unfortunate set of circumstances. You know, I hope we can move past that. But I think the most revealing thing Kemp says is, if you're coming to Georgia talking about 2020, you're going to make life a lot more complicated complicated than it has to be. Now, now here's, here's, here's the only out for Kemp, as far as I'm concerned. If Kemp and Trump made a deal, Kemp may not want to be VP. He may want to be something else. He may want to be trade secretary. He may want to be, you know, secretary of state. I don't have any idea what Kemp's ambitions are. But, but if Kemp and Trump could cut a deal, you know, I, I need you to, to put your infrastructure in place. I need you to go to work for, you know, uh, once we win the primary. Now, I'm, I'm basing this on what I expect to be an, the, the inevitable, and that is Trump winning the Republican primary. I mean, once again, you got a lawsuit pending in, um, in, in Florida. You got a potential lawsuit in Georgia, but I think Kemp can carry the water in Georgia. I mean, he can't stop Fannie Willis, this Fulton County District Attorney, from pursuing legal judgment, but but he can cloud the waters. I mean, he can say, you know, this is nonsense. I mean, he can be Trump's defender. I the the sooner that Donald Trump, trust me, guys, please trust me on this. The sooner that Donald Trump and Brian Kemp make good, the better off Trump is winning the presidency in 2024. Now, now once again, tr Trump is a lot smarter than I am. He's, I, I mean, obviously, he's he, he's guy that came out of nowhere, won the presidency. 
Very few have ever done that. I mean, that, that that's such a unique accomplishment. But at times, I think he gets inattentive to some of these details. And I, I, I hope somebody in his universe, in his orbit, is reminding him how important Brian Kemp is in this entire endeavor. Whether he's on the ticket or not, he's got to go make good with Kemp. Kemp's already said, I'm for the nominee. But what does that mean? Does that mean when the president shows up in Fulton County, you welcome him? Or does that mean you, you employ or you deploy you your infrastructure? Your, you put everything, yeah, everybody I mean, to you work. Know, you, yeah. the, the machine that you built to get elected governor, you put that same machine in place to help Donald Trump get uh, get elected president by winning uh, in Georgia. I, I just think that is such an important. It means a lot more to Donald Trump than it does to, to um, Governor Kemp. I mean, Kemp's, Kemp's a, a kind of a popular governor. In a southern state, uh, the future is before him. The the you know I believe that he's the most logical choice to be a VP, um, a running mate. But if if Trump said, "Look, I'm probably going another way," but there's got to be some you know carrot out there that you're most interested in, and make that deal now. I mean, make a deal with Brian Kemp today, so Kemp can begin understanding how important deploying that infrastructure is. And I'm not talking about meeting the president at the airport. I'm talking about taking activists and, and surrogates and all these people that helped Brian Kemp beat Stacey Abrams by a pretty solid margin in what we're calling it. It's not a toss-up state. I mean, it's only a toss-up state because Georgia figured out a way, you know, with Stacey Abrams and the shenanigans around Fulton County, Gwinnett County, and some of the, I mean, that's why it turned uh, the way it did. Kemp, Really and truly, I mean, he, he he puts in place an infrastructure that makes sure that doesn't happen again. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. So I don't know very much about Brian Kemp politically, though. I mean, for example, you know, is he America first? Is he America first enough? He's America first enough for me <laughs> to win Georgia. I mean, well, what does Drew say every Thursday? Winners make policy. Winners appoint cabinet chairs. Winners appoint administrative agency heads. Winners make decisions that affect the body politic. And you don't get to make them if you don't win. Do, do, do I believe there are more America First candidates out there than Brian Kemp? Yes. But they're not the governor of Georgia. They didn't beat. I mean, remember when Trump endorsed Sonny Perdue? Yeah. I mean, because he, like like Kemp said, You're I'm mad, mad at him, he's mad at me. Um, he held a vendetta, held a grudge. Trump endorsed Purdue. Um, Kemp proceeded to whip Purdue 74 to 22%. And then he beat Stacey Abrams 54-46 when uh, the Democrats won both, you know, um, Senate seats in, in Georgia. I'm, I'm just saying, it's it's to me, it's obvious. You've got to involve. You, you've got to, in some way, shape, or form, and Trump struggles here. Trump's got to be very diplomatic and ingratiate himself to Brian Kemp if he wants to win the presidency. Because I think Kemp is a central figure to winning Georgia. If you can't win Georgia, you're not going to win the presidency. I mean, if Trump can't win Georgia, do you really believe he wins Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania and Arizona and and um, uh, Nevada? No. I mean, of course not. He's got to win Georgia. That's a state that has to go his way. And, and, I, and I'll say this, Kemp may not want to be VP, but they've got to make a deal, that they've got to come to some resolution 
about the um uh, the, the past episodes of not caring much for one another. It's in Kemp's best interest if he wants to be a national figure in American politics. It is absolutely in Trump's best interest. So to answer your question, could Trump find a more America first governor? Yeah. I mean, in a perfect world, it would be J.D. Vance, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, if I'm thinking of the perfect guy for Trump to pass the baton to, to continue and sustain America first as a political movement, it would be J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance isn't the governor of Georgia. I mean, in a perfect world, J.D. Vance would be the governor of Georgia, <laughs> but he's not. He's a senator from Ohio that, that is, you know, more red probably than it's ever been because of the Trump coalition, of the white working class, of the proponent, you know, the the uh, the dominance Trump has with that voting block. But I, I just think when you look at the body of work Kemp's done, maybe he didn't do what Trump wanted him to do. Maybe he should have. But 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 Trump's got to win Georgia, and Kemp makes it much more likely that Trump wins Georgia. Let's go to the phone. Barry in Chirag. Good morning. Hey, morning, guys. Hey, uh, Ken, so he's part of the Sea Island crew, right, uh, that I always meet every year. Um so I, I don't think he's American first. I'm, I'm with you, Dave, on that. Uh, you were asking, but I'm 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 with you. You got to have Kemp, but I just don't know if they can do it, Ken. I just I have a feeling in my heart that that Kemp is anti-Trump. Um, they want him to run for president. I, I disagree with that, Barry. Tr- tr- let me read you what he says. You ready? I got the article. Go ahead. He was mad at me. I was mad at him. I told him exactly what I could and couldn't do when it came to the election and followed the law and the Constitution. As I've said before, um, that's a lot bigger than the Donald Trump, a lot bigger than me, a lot bigger than the Republican Party. But he goes on to say that he will absolutely support the nominee of the party. There are a lot of Republicans who have not said they will absolutely support the nominee of the party. I've been in politics. To me, that's somewhat of an olive branch. When Trump reads or somebody on Trump's team reads that Brian Kemp said unequivocally, I will back the nominee of the party. To me, that's kind of a, um, here's my hand. Will, will you shake my hand and let's begin a conversation to heal the relationship that, that, you know, you think I screwed you. I think you screwed me. Okay. All right. So what, what, but who was in attendance at this sea island? It, this Sea Island retreat. But 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 I'm, I'm just saying, here's all I'm paying attention to, Barry, and okay. I don't dispute anything you, you're saying. Here's what I'm saying. Trump endorsed Purdue. Kemp won 74-22. Absolutely. Trump, yep. Trump lost. Uh, I'm, no, that's unfair. Trump didn't lose Senate seats. Walker was a different candidate, and we knew that going in, and, and Trump did all he could to get him across the finish line. They just couldn't do it. But in that election cycle, Kemp beats Abrams 54 46. The guy knows Georgia. I mean, he is a very effective and skillful politician in Georgia. And I think you will agree with me. If Trump can't win Georgia, it's hard to see him in the White House again. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So I agree that you have to. I'm just worried about I'm worried about Kim. I, I think Trump will will say, hey, let's let's. Do you worry about him so much as to not make some sort of overture? In other words, do what if Kemp wants to be Secretary of Transportation? I mean, no, no, you put him in there. You you, you make a there. deal now with yeah, him. Yeah. If he wants to be Secretary of State, sure. I'm good with that. Sure. I'm good. I'm I, what, what I'm saying is Kemp and Trump have to conclude that, that it's in both of our best interests. I don't need to just meet you at the airport, Donald, and, and us shake hands and say, okay, bygones are bygones. I need you to em- deploy that infrastructure that, that helped you beat Purdue as bad as you did and helped you beat Abrams as bad as you did 
Um, Trump needs that. And I think Kemp raises his profile if he goes to work for America First. Um, if you're questioning is America First bona fide, I get it. I mean, I've just said I don't know how America First he is. But if he honestly deploys his infrastructure and works for Trump to win Georgia, doesn't he gain some street cred? Absolutely. Okay. He does. Absolutely. I just don't like the guys that's in his corner. I, that's just me. You know, that's that's the conspiracy, the Carl Rose, <laughs> the John Banners. I, I don't like them, the Paul Ryans. I just well, I don't you know. like them either. You know, I don't. I mean, but I'd rather got, I'd, work with them. I'd rather banish them from the party. And I believe there is a day coming that we don't have to worry about Carl Rove and Paul Ryan, but we yeah. ain't there yet. That's right. Well, y'all have a good week now. Thank you, Barry. Appreciate it. See that that's an interesting take, Barry has, and that's a, I mean, that, to me, that's a very responsible attitude to have. I, I'm suspicious about Kemp, but my suspicion of Kemp has to take a back seat to Trump's desire to win Georgia. I mean, he's got to win Georgia. And I think anybody of any political aptitude and elect has to understand how important Kemp is. That once again, not just meeting Trump at the airport and glad-handing and doing a photo op. I'm talking about Trump sitting down with Kemp and say, Brian, um, you know, I think you let me down. I, I know you don't, but I think you did. I mean, let Trump get that off his chest. But, but here's what I want to do. I want to make a deal with you. M- maybe VP. Maybe Secretary of Transportation. I have no idea what Kemp's interested in, but but I need to win Georgia, and it's going to be real hard to win it without you on board. Can we make a deal? I mean that that's the that's the dirty side of politics that people don't care much for. But but Trump's a pragmatist. I mean he's a business guy. He's more inclined to make a deal than most politicians are. Um, and I don't think Trump has to swallow his pride. I mean he can say I still believe the guy let me down, but I want to be in the White House. And the best way for me to get to the White House is to win Georgia. And the most successful politician in Georgia today is Brian Kemp. Let's go to the phone. Rujan in Darlington. Good morning. Good morning, guys. Hey, uh, if, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, if, 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 if I'm hearing you right, I think the primary is pretty much over. I mean, uh, you all know. Rujan, I believe it Trump. is. I, I just, I mean, I, I'm looking at DeSantis and I'm looking at t- I mean, I, I see somebody having a moment in the sun, but but I, I just don't see this getting very close. I just don't. No, no I, I agree with you, a hundred percent. So so for me, you know, if if, if I, when I saw it with Kemp saying what he said, I mean, that's like like you said, that's an olive branch, and Donald Trump needs to jump all over this and solidify his nomination and 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 win the election. I mean, like you said, you can't win without Georgia, so. You gotta do what you gotta do. Thank you, Rujan. Yeah. Appreciate that. And and once again, I mean, Kemp. I think the the most interesting thing Kemp says is, I mean, he gives Trump advice. I mean, he says, you know, I don't think he needs to come down here talking about the twenty twenty election. I mean, he's, and he and he tries to be. I mean, Kemp could be insulting. I mean, obviously he could because there's some bad blood there. But he's not. He says, you know, the former president needs to be forward thinking and not concentrate as much on the 2020 election. Now, CNN ads are, are words like abandon his narrative of false claims. And, you know, I mean, Trump didn't say, excuse me, uh, Kemp didn't say any of that. But, but the most interesting thing Kemp says is that um, he's disappointed in Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis, and he's disappointed that it's taken this long to um, figure out whether you're going to indict or not. Because that's got to be on the table too, guys. I mean, if you've got an indictment pending and it's in Georgia, don't you think Trump, excuse me, don't you think Kemp can help with damage control? 
about what's happening in Fulton County. Of course they're going to indict him in Fulton County. I mean, they, you know, they did a lot of things that don't make any sense in Fulton County. I, I just think you've got, you've got immediate, you've got an immediate kind of a macro presence in one of the most pivotal and important states. Because I'm telling you guys, I mean, if the macro is, is heading that way and Georgia's off the table, I think Trump can win Georgia without Kemp. I mean, I think Trump can. I mean, I, I think that's possible. There's no doubt about it. I mean, Donald Trump can go to Georgia, and he and Brian Kemp be at odds, and he can still win Georgia. But it's far more likely, far more likely. In fact, I think you can bank it if he and Trump have made amends and they're on the same sheet of music and he's endorsing the nominee, working for the nominee. Uh, you know, and I just think I know how people are. You know, what, what do I get out of this? <laughs> and, I mean, that's just that's just human nature. Uh, what, what am I getting out of this? Uh, what do you want? I mean, you got to let me know what it is you want, Brian. Um, you know, and maybe the VP is too high profile. I mean, maybe that creates consternation. Maybe Kemp doesn't want any part of being the VP. But there's some cabinet position that, that I can assure you the governor of Georgia would be very interested in. The governor of South Carolina was very interested in, in a position. I mean, that, 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 that raises your profile to another level. Let's go to the phone. Daphne and Dylan. Good morning, Daphne. Good morning, guys. Uh, considering Ryan Kemp, uh, the fact is my mom always told me, don't believe what a person says. Believe what they've done and what they're doing. In fact, if you dig deeper, you'll find that Brian Kemp and his AG went into an agreement with Stacey Abrams after she lost the governor's race and allowed her, allowed Facebook to do some horrible things like same-day vote registration, uh, the drop boxes, and the infusion of money from Facebook, not for campaigns, but directly to the election commission. So there you go. They went into an agreement without the legislator's approval. And that's where the deal comes in, whether you're honest or dishonest. That's it. Thank you, Daphne. Appreciate it. The most popular politician in Georgia today is Brian Kemp. Who are going to decide the 16 electoral votes in Georgia? The voters of Montana, the voters of Pennsylvania, or the voters of Georgia? The voters of Georgia. Brian Kemp is the most popular politician, Republican or Democrat, in the state of Georgia, you are what your record says you are, and Brian Kemp has a very impressive record uh, in Georgia. Now, 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 you know, I understand you have issues with him and Abrams. You have issues with him and, you know, and what he didn't do for Trump, and he didn't re-engage in a way that Trump voters believed he should have. All I'm saying is Georgia in play. Brian Kemp, the most popular elected official in the state of Georgia with a record of beating Trump's endorsed Republican primary opponent 74 to 22 percent and then wiping the floor with big old Stacey Abrams 54 to 46 percent. That's all I care about. I'm sorry. I mean, call, call me the uber pragmatist. Um, call me in bed with the devil. Call me whatever you choose to call me. It's about winning what gives you the best chance to win? And if you're a Trump supporter, 
Uh, do, do, do you want to lose in Georgia on, yeah, but, I mean, we didn't give in to that Kemp guy because he met with Abrams, or do you want to win? The people of Georgia like Brian Kemp. The people of Georgia will decide where those 16 electoral votes land. And I just don't understand how anybody associated with Trump could be antagonistic. I understand you may or may not like the guy. I understand you may believe he threw your guy under the bus and didn't do what he should have done in in a critical moment in political history. All I'm saying is the people of Georgia are very comfortable voting for Brian Kemp. I think they're very comfortable voting for people that Brian Kemp um, outwardly and publicly supports. And that's why I think Kemp is such an essential part to Trump winning Georgia, making it possible for him to win um, the White House. Do we want Trump not in the White House but not giving in to Brian Kemp? Or do we want Trump in the White House having made some sort of concession uh, or deal with Brian Kemp? I mean, to me, it's a no-brainer. I mean, to you, it may not be. To you, you may um, stand on merit, stand on principle, stand on, you know, 100%. You know, I I need this guy to be with us 100% of the time. Um, and I think it's important that Brian Kemp has said what he said. I think that is Kemp's Well, that's way. what makes this more interesting. I mean, you've been talking about it for a while, but now to hear those sort well, of words the, from the, Brian the, Kemp's mouth. There's an article in thehill.com that recounts the interview Kemp did on CNN. And, I mean, take the Hill and CNN for what it's worth. But but I went back and YouTube the interview, and it's obvious to me that Brian Kemp understands for a Republican to win they have to be they have to be successful in Georgia and he, all he did was encourage Trump I mean he didn't say you know Donald Trump should have done that now he said I would encourage the former president to be forward thinking to not spend as much time on the 2020 election well I mean polling clearly shows that I mean it, there's it's indisputable other than the most intense and loyal Trump voter Republican primary voters in general believe Trump or whomever, are better off not talking about what happened in 2020. Let's move ahead. I mean, we've got our beliefs. We've got what we stand on. We know something doesn't make sense about 2020, but this is the 2020 election revisited. I mean, this isn't Rocky too, right? I mean, this is a new election. This is a new campaign. It looks like Trump, to Rujan's point, is going to be the nominee. And if he's going to be the nominee, let's start plowing the ground in some of the most hard-to-win places and I think the most the easiest win of the most hard to win places is Georgia. And I think you, I think you can put it in the bank if Brian Kemp and Donald Trump make a kind of a formal or informal deal that not just meets at the airport but deploys that infrastructure. And 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 you know this is my guy. I mean, when Brian Kemp tells the voters of Georgia, independents and Republicans. And I'm talking about marginal Republicans. I'm talking about independent, you know, Republican-leaning independents who voted for Kemp. I think when 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 they say, "Hey, you know, I'm working for Donald Trump. I'm trying to get this Republican elected to the White House," it carries a lot of weight in Georgia right now. And and once again, you are what your record says you are: 54-46 against Abrams, 75. Uh, let me look again: 74 to 22 against a Trump-endorsed Purdue. Tell me who the Republican voters in Georgia are, are in tune with. Tell me who the independents are uh, in tune with. Tell me who the Republican-leaning independents are. They like Brian Kemp. And it doesn't matter what we think of Kemp. They like Brian Kemp. And guess who votes in a Georgia primary? Guess who votes in a Georgia presidential election? The people of Georgia. 
to me, it's a little interesting that the the way he he says it is not Trump should never talk about the 2020 again. It says he should just not focus on it so much. He's trying his damnedest to be respectful of Trump. I mean, it sounds I, doubt, like. I doubt Kemp cares much for Trump. I doubt Trump cares much for Kemp. But 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 I think Kemp understands this moment and how important Georgia is. And you're right. He's very. He's. I mean, it, it's not backhanded. Back, uh, a backhanded compliment. He's just in dog whistle saying, "Donald, don't come down here talking about 2020 again, because it's going to make it a lot harder to win." And I want you to win, man, because I, by and large, agree with your policy. And I wouldn't mind being ambassador to Costa Rica. Um, <laughs> yeah, being ambassador to where? Afghanistan or Costa Rica? I don't want to be ambassador to Afghanistan, but ambassador to Costa Rica would be another animal. And it raises Kemp's profile. I mean, Kemp knows he's relevant. Kemp's not a moron. I mean, he's not running for president, but he knows that eventually he'll be somewhat of a, um, not a kingmaker, but but he'll be somewhat of a um, a very important political figure, not in the primary, but once we get to the, the general in November of 24. Take a break. We'll be back in just a second. 843-661-0937. Real quick, I want to get back to that in the next hour. Dr. Will Bolt, history chair, uh, Francis Marion University, will be with us. Uh, I was telling Rhea, Bolt probably gets tired of talking about early American history. I mean, he gets paid to talk about early American history. He comes over here, you know, to, to kind of relieve himself of, <laughs> and, and all we want to talk about, the Federalist Papers and what did Madison mean and what that damn Jefferson um, Josh actually sent me a video. Can I say this, Josh? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the video you sent me that claims Jefferson didn't have children, illegitimate children with slaves. It was about 40 minutes. I listened to all of it. I told you I would on the way to the beach. Um, it, 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 it's a very interesting proposal. Um, I would argue it's somewhat accurate, but um, is inaccurate by omission. But there, there are some things they're carefully left out of the of the tale but it but it's it, it to me it's an illustration josh of how complicated you, you we're trying to explain jefferson's relationship with slavery in a bumper sticker mm-hmm. and that's i mean that's unfair i mean that's the, the bumper would have to be from here to mars to explain jefferson's relationship with slavery anybody in that time's relationship with slavery jefferson just happened to be uh, above average IQ and thought a lot about it and theorized a lot about it and had responsibilities regarding, you know, what to do or not to do. But I appreciate you sending it to me because it enlightened me um, because people like Jefferson and I are, you know, somewhat enlightened. <laughs> I mean, it, it enlightened me about some of the, um, uh, some of the preconceived narrative and what truth really is. And, um, and, and, and you know, in some situations, I don't know that, I mean, we have to interpret what, what intent was. So, some of the ancillaries. Uh, and the reason I, Jefferson isn't going to sit down behind the microphone and be interrogated or deposed. I mean, we're going to have to formulate judgments. Uh, historians like Dr. Bolt are going to have to teach kids. And, and the teachings will include things that, I, I mean, I, Bolt may disagree with me here, that they're not 1,000% sure of. I mean, that there have been estimations made. And there have been, um, you know, uh, conversations and research done that leads the majority of historians to believe this. But we don't know. As, as I get older, it, it dawns on me how little I really know. Does that make sense? I mean, the, yeah. these, I mean, the, these decisions that I made over the years, 
based on the information that I had that led me down this road or that road or another road. I mean, it, it would be hard for me to find a road I've traveled based on being 1,000% sure that everything I was basing those decisions on was the truth, the whole truth, and nothing uh, but the truth. There's there, there's a interpretation of the truth. And and I think what, what Josh sent me, it's about 40 minutes long. And it's scholarly. I mean, it's very academically inclined. And it says, you know, um, there's more to the story than history has. Uh, American history has chosen, really picking on academia a little bit, academia has chosen <laughs> to propose as um, debate. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. So the words redneck and intellect will, will, will while Jacob Dill, Bob Dylan's son in the background, right? That's right. That's kind of a weird, you know, a weird mixture there. Um, kind of a hybrid of a lot of different sorts of things kicking. <laughs> Dr. Will Bolt, just history like chair, show. Francis Marion University, is here. Um, I want to get there in just a second, but sure. you enjoy modern politics as well. I mean, you're not just, just exclusive bit, yeah. to um, where we come from. You want to know where we're <laughs> headed, I would imagine. So Rev and I did some math. I really did the math. Um, Rev just kind of um, blessed my math. I said, yeah, you're right. 16. Uh, I helped with the research. Uh, 16 plus 2 is 18. 18 plus 4 is 22. You're right. You're right. Um, so Trump was at 232. But that, you know, Biden's at 306 or whatever. Yeah. Trump was at 232. It takes 270 to win the nomination. Forget 306. That doesn't matter. I mean, 270 is the number. So if you take 232 and add 16 in Georgia, you're at 248. I mean, out of the gate. I mean, imagine yeah. if you're Trump. You're, you're a controversial political figure. Um, that There's no doubt about it. I mean, your unpredictability is your blessing and your curse. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, Andrew Jackson, I mean, he would have yeah. been similar to that, you know, um, they, they like him because of that, but they don't like him, uh, because of that. But, but let, let's play math because math applies to everybody. I don't care how bombastic or not you are, but the math is the math is the math. So Trump was at 232. If Trump engages Kemp and they do somewhat of a mutual mea culpa, it's in both of their best interest to be on um, each other's good side. So you get to 248. Then you've got Pennsylvania at 20. I mean, don't spend any money. See, here's the difference, Bold, and I'm going to get your take on sure, this. Sure. In my lifetime, I don't remember a presidential campaign that, that a Republican has ever gone into feeling as confident as they can about Ohio and, and Florida. And Florida. Off the map. I mean, you're talking about 29 and 18. I mean, that, that's a big number. I mean, you're talking about, what, 37, uh, 47, 47 electoral votes solidly right in the Republicans' camp. Play. No question about it. And you've got to invest. you got resources. Right. Well, you've got J.D. Vance. expensive states. Bingo. Too. Bingo. And, I, and I'll tell you this, Rev, this is why Trump needs to be careful with DeSantis. I mean, you know, don't don't punch down. I mean, if, if DeSantis gets to a place, that's what worries me a little bit when he started saying Ron DeSanctimonious. <laughs> DeSantis is popular in Florida. Still is, yeah. I mean, he's very popular in Florida. And he was at, I mean, if, if, if Trump's at 41 and DeSantis is at 35, then he's Ron DeSanctimonious. But with Trump at 50 right, there's no need. and DeSantis at 19, he's Ron DeSantis. Yeah. I mean, that you've got DeSanctimonious in your pocket but the last thing you want to do is alienate his yeah. base in um in Florida and and you know JD Vance in Ohio. 
I mean, he's a you know he and he's an America firster. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And uh, I, I just think this is we're, we're we're treating this as if Trump wins the nominee and it's over. I mean, Trump can't win because he's such a controversial. Uh, I I just think that's bizarre to believe. And if he and if he if he gets in good graces with Kemp. He's at 248. Right You've got Nevada with six, Arizona 11, Wisconsin 10. Let, let's say Michigan's off the board. I mean, let's give the Democrats Michigan. Um, I mean, you still got Pennsylvania, Nevada, Arizona, Wisconsin. Trump can play in those states. I mean, th- there's no doubt about it. It's a very, very winnable general there's election. A, there's a lot more pathways than we probably suspect, right? I, it, it all starts with Georgia. If you If you don't get Georgia... It's pretty much impossible. You're going to have to pull a rabbit. You're going to have to steal. Maybe I can use a better word. You're going to have to win a state that they don't expect you to win. You're going to have to. This is going to have to be a big, huge surprise somewhere. But all right, George gets you to 248. Uh, what is it? Was Arizona's 11? Mm-hmm. 259. Mm-hmm. And then you got a Nebraska. You got a congressional there's seat in a Nebraska. Weird, exactly. You, you could almost. You could have a tie at 270. And there's a Maine gave a vote to Trump last time. So there's a lot of different permutations but no it it begins and ends with georgia if you can't find a way to get georgia if you alienate kemp if kemp's not on board it's a really uphill climb and you're gonna have to go huge into pennsylvania pennsylvania is tough biden's from there he's still got a lot of ties there they still like him you'd say maybe a jd vance on the ticket well you got ohio but vance is popular in western would would help you in western pennsylvania and could maybe offset the tsunami that will come from Philadelphia and the suburbs. So it, it's fascinating, and I think anybody who says that Biden walks to re-election if Trump is the nominee, uh, they're, they're not doing their homework. And it's simple math, guys. If you've got $100 million allocated to spend in Georgia, to win Georgia, and you make a deal with Kemp, you spend $20 million in Georgia, you redeploy the $80 million in Arizona, in Wisconsin, in Nevada, in Pennsylvania, and you become even more competitive. I mean, money's the mother's milk. I mean, it still is. But but, but, but I think Bolton made a very interesting point. You've got the Vance influence, not just in Ohio, but also in Western Pennsylvania. So when when you saturate, when you invest heavily into Ohio, it trickles over into Western Pennsylvania. You're double dipping. You're two states for the price of one. And so, again, you would say, well, you've got Ohio in the bag, oh, and Ohio Center doesn't help you. But, again, Ohio, Western Pennsylvania, very, very similar demographics now. Is that enough to kind of get you over the top? Who knows? I, th- I think Kemp on the ticket certainly gives you Georgia for sure, and then you're, you, d- you don't got to worry about that at all. You only got to just spend a limited amount of resources. It gives you a lot more options, but who knows? Is it fair to say from your perspective, and we'll get early American history in two seconds. That's good stuff. Is, yeah. Is, yeah, it is. But I mean, it's interesting, and it's time to think about it. Yeah. Is it fair to say that Virginia and North Carolina are similar in that the Democrats <laughs> always believe they're at the precipice of winning North Carolina? The Republicans right. believe they're at the precipice of reclaiming Virginia yeah. as um as true Southern conservative territory. I, I, would, I would say that Virginia is more of a lock. For the Democrats right now, they have just really, really sealed it off. Just the the D.C. sprawl into Northern Virginia. I mean, Yunkin is probably a, going to be an outlier. It was a, an off year election, but when it matters, every four years, there's just enough Democrats that the southern, the southwestern part of the state, uh, the the redneck, the hillbilly vote, if you will, it's just it just doesn't matter anymore. North Carolina, it's they always talk about the research triangle. 
But for many, many years, Republicans talk about the white whale was Pennsylvania, Michigan. And along comes Donald Trump in 2016 and finally got through that, finally broke through the, the blue wall up in the, up in the Rust Belt. Uh, Obama carried North Carolina the first time, didn't carry it the second time. Uh, lost it in 2012, and ever since then, the Democrats, oh, this year, this is the year we're going to get it. Again, if if Biden is running very, very well in North Carolina and looks like he's got it, then there's really no way for President Trump to get to 270. So again, you do, you, you do got to make sure you lock down North Carolina. It could just be sort of like a, a head fake from the Democrats. They Maybe they're, they're pulling so that we don't have much of a chance, but if we can get them to divert resources, that's a win-win. But no, again, if, if North Carolina is on the map, then it's it's probably bad for President Trump. What is your opinion of a, a, a kind of a theory I have? And my theory is there, there's beauty in letting Trump. I mean, in other words, the, the Republicans say you got to let Trump be Trump. Let Trump be Trump, yeah. And the Democrats say, yeah, let him be Trump. I mean, he'll scare off all the independents. I mean, it kind of cuts both ways there. Biden is equally as bad. Yes. I mean, you yes. know, I don't know any Democrat saying let Biden be Biden. <laughs> you know, I know a lot of Republicans that say, yeah, march him out there. Let You know, yeah, let him, you let know, him be you know viewed publicly. This will be an advantage. And, and once again, I'm not saying it's inevitable because who knows what the future holds. I don't, you don't, or anybody else does. But it looks to me like, Dr. Bolt, that we're heading to a rematch. Yeah. We're, we're heading to a Trump-Biden rematch. The, the advantage I think Trump has here is let Biden be Biden. Yeah. I mean, let, let, he has Bi- a terrible yeah. record. Well, I mean, yeah. send Biden, let, let him fall two or three more times. You know, yeah. let, let, him, yeah. let him say things that are just completely and totally incoherent. And, and you know, but, but the thing Trump has got to understand is when Biden is being Biden, just let him be. Right. I mean, Trump's the kind to say, well, I think he's on cocaine. You know, I mean, it, <laughs> it's almost like the guy just... <laughs> He seizes, I mean, if he has a chance to say something, Trump's one of the politicians who believes, when I'm talking, I'm winning. Yeah, and I think win. in Biden's case, let Biden right. be Biden a bit and kind of stay in the periphery. If your enemy wants to hang himself, give him the rope. By all means, help him out. But no, if I'm a campaign staffer, if I'm on Biden's staff, I'm going to try and keep everything as orchestrated as I can. I mean, the remarks are only going to be scripted, few and far between. We're probably just going to have one debate and hold your breath. And hopefully we can get through it and not really, really screw up. And I think, right, that's the, you don't want to let Biden be Biden. You want everything scripted, controlled, keep him in the White House, keep him in the Rose Garden. Don't let him get out there because you never know what he's going to do. More than likely, he's going to make a gaffe. It's not like he's going to have this a Kennedy-esque or a Lincoln-esque moment where oh, people are going to come running. Oh, my God, yes, I've, I've changed my mind. There's a greater chance that there's going to be a, a blunder, I would imagine. Toward the end of last week, I told Ray, for the first time in this election cycle, Trump was more likely to win the Republican primary than Biden is to win the Democrat primary. I checked that number again um, this morning, Rev. Trump's numbers have gone from 59 to 61. There's a 61% chance that Donald Trump wins the Republican now, these primary. Are the, these are the betting. These are the betting odds. Right. You're right. I mean, yeah. Forget the polling. These are the betting odds. These are the wise guys. Uh, and, it's, and it's based out of London. I mean, the majority Overseas. of betting comes from um, from London. We can't bet on the American presidency because we're so we're we're so um, you know well, we're so true and virtuous to our to our cause. You know th- those Brits. You know how they are. Um, we whooped them in the war, and they That's now right. bet on our American uh, presidents. But no, Dr. Bolt, I think this is interesting. So Biden is still the odds-on favor to be president. Thirty-four percent, twenty-eight percent for Trump. Yeah. But in the primary, this is so interesting to me. Trump has a 61% chance. Biden has a 50. It was a 69. 
Now it's down. It was 61 last when we talked. It's all the way down to 59%. That leads me to believe that there are some out there that suspect the big story may not be on the Republican side, Maybe, yeah. but rather the Democrat with Biden not making it to the finish line. Who, who knows, right? There could be really a, a huge, huge surprise. But no, I think with you, almost certainly, it's it's a it's a rematch. And who'd have thought three months ago we'd be saying that the the Republican primary there isn't going to be one? It's it's over and it's done with. Do you I mean, think we're there? I mean, do you think it's inevitable? I, I, I'm I'm flabber- I'm stunned by it. But yes, it's it, it's Trump's right now. I mean, let's see. There's a huge, huge revelation, or just a a massive, massive blunder. No, it's, 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 it's over. You know, it, it's, it's, I can't it's, believe it. It's hysterical to me. A college professor just said, unless there's some big moment out there, the, the guy's got two indictments. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're waiting on two trials, and the, we're saying they, they but, help him. But yeah, sure, <laughs> more the better. But, but I mean, imagine Come this, on, Georgia. Guys. Imagine we, we've got a a Republican front runner who's been indicted twice. <laughs> And we're waiting on a trial to happen. We're waiting on a judge to decide whether they're going to have. And, and Bolt says, if something big happens, which we're used to it. Accustomed to it. We become so desensitized to what normal. And maybe that's the legacy of Trump. You know, the um, the normal has turned into chaotic, and the more chaotic, the better. The better he is. Well, we, how many times have we said it? He's Trump is just rewriting everything we thought we knew about politics. He's the gift that keeps on giving me. Oh, to be a political historian 20, 30 years from now, you know, if you, if you were just kind of like arrived in America and looked at like, Donald Trump, my God, what a fascinating guy to study and write about. So, again, he just continues to, to change the stuff we take for granted. And and Bolt just said, I mean, that's got to be one of the great moments of our show. Bolt just said, if something big was happening, big happens, right? <laughs> I'm like, what, what? I mean, what, yeah. you, an indictment? I mean, imagine if he got indicted, you know, and incarcerated. That's I mean, imagine. Well, I mean, I, I'll say it before. I think Trump wins the primary from a prison cell. I, I, I want to see that debate, you know, from the, the Fulton County Courthouse in, a, in an orange jumpsuit, man. That's must-see TV, you know. It's, it's a ratings bonanza. Yeah, you, you got Biden with a uh, with, with a napkin, kind of like a, uh, what do you call it, a bib, mm-hmm. you know, to make sure it doesn't spill food and all this kind of thing. You got Trump in an orange jumpsuit. You'd, you'd um, think it was a Saturday Night Live skit. Yeah. He's like, no, this is the actual thing. <laughs> yeah. Is America declined? I don't know. We got one presidential candidate in prison. The other's in an old folks' home. Has a beer bone. Doesn't Truth know he's is in the stranger world. than fiction. Truth is stranger than fiction. Um, no question. I want to take a break, come back sure. on the other side. I do want to revisit with, with Dr. Bolt something we touched on, and that is um, the seriousness history deserves and whether we're willing to really give it that or not, or do we allow you know a, um, a self-professed expert to say, well, this is the way it was, and there's no date debate yeah. uh, to be had. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Okay, Dr. Bolt, I need some expert advice. Dr. Will Bolt, history chair, Francis Marion University is with us. So Josh sends me a, a video. I think Josh took exception with some of the uh, conversation we had last week, uh, just assuming that the historical understanding of Thomas Jefferson and slavery were something you could put on a postcard, something you could put on a on a bumper sticker, and and this forty minute video he sent me was interesting because it expressed how complicated Jefferson's relationship with slavery um, was. Is it? I'm not asking you what what you know exactly what do you believe Jefferson's relationship with slavery was, but is it fair to say that we try to simplify some of these very complicated matters because it makes us feel good about ourselves well i i had it made in the first segment you're talking talking <laughs> talking trump man you're, you're gonna make me work now 
<laughs> should have rested on my laurels for the time being. <laughs> what you get for wearing a Jefferson Borough exactly, zero, zero yeah. sweatshirt, I mean a t-shirt. I mean, history is, it's 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 in flux. We New documents, new evidence comes to light. And so we we're always have to sort of reevaluate in every generation, succeeding generation of Americans, has the right to sort of interpret the past uh, as, as they see it. And certainly Jefferson, we've talked about this before, we're very fortunate. Jefferson, every scrap of paper, thankfully for us, the guy made a point of preserving. So there's plenty to analyze and try and dissect with Thomas Jefferson. It's an intriguing, I don't know if you want to call it a theory, the idea of Jefferson having extracurricular activities with Sally Hemings was around even while Jefferson was president, going back to the very, very early 1800s. The earliest defense, people said, well, Mr. Jefferson wouldn't do that. That was simply uh, simply beneath him. We thought the DNA evidence, at least as we were told by the public, was confirmed that her case closed. But now perhaps maybe there's how the evidence was looked at. Perhaps there might be somebody else, uh, according to the video, who was responsible for this. Again, if this if it's proven that Jefferson was not the father of this. Uh, I wonder how quick a lot of academics, my colleagues, are going to say, oops, my bad. You know, I got egg on my face. Are they going to change their presentations, their discussions of Jefferson, or are they going to maybe uh, simply ignore this because it doesn't fit their narrative? Is Jefferson the face of the slavery debate in early American history? Jefferson didn't enter the debate, but Jefferson is kind of symbolic. Jefferson believed that Slavery is bad. We can't get any. We've got the wolf by the ears. Cannot let him hold him or let him go. Jefferson believed that eventually, gradually, it's going to wither away and it's going to go away on its own. And by the time Jefferson writes the Declaration of Independence, slavery's already been around for over 150 years. Jefferson realized you, you, you can't get rid of this overnight. You still had slaves in New York State as late as the 1830s. All right. So again, just getting rid of this with the stroke of a pen, which we finally did. During the Civil War, the, for the, foundings, the founding fathers, this wasn't an option. This has to be done gradually. And Jefferson's opinions kind of by the end of his life, after there was a huge debate over slavery in Missouri in 1820, kind of forced Jefferson to maybe to reevaluate uh, and kind of maybe take a more hardened position uh, on slavery. But up until for most of his life, thought that this, this it's going to wither away, gradually go about on its own. And that was his opinion. So have historians failed us? I mean, I'm asking to be self, yeah. you to be self-incriminating here a bit, not you personally, but the profession. I mean, when when mainstream America sees a Jefferson statue being torn down, oh, a lot say, well, it should be because the guy was a slave owner and slavery yeah. should have been abolished and slavery is bad. And Jefferson was a participant in that, you know, that trade and, and therefore it should be torn down. But, but, but once again, it's much more complicated sure. than that. Sure. So, so, so. Have historians failed in properly educating the American public about the the, yeah. the, the entire story? Well, there, there, there's, there's Paul Harvey would say the rest of the story. but And so, no, a lot of historians now, the narrative is Jefferson's a bad guy. He's a slaveholder. If you were in a history class 30, 40 years from now, before a lot of this really came to light, Jefferson's one of the great founding fathers. He deserves to be up there out on Mount Rushmore. You know, all the accolades, this, this, the statues of him— we deserve to have them. Again, as I said before, every generation kind of has the right to look at, and this is where the current generation is. Many of them are Jefferson, Washington, Andrew Jackson. They're bad guys. Even Abraham Lincoln is a bad guy. He didn't do. He didn't move fast enough on slavery. And then a lot of it's wokeism gone, gone amok. And again, you get 
you never know what you're going to get in a history class. You get somebody like me who's more of a, a triumphalist approach that these uh, th- these guys had their flaws, but we're still going to talk about a lot of the good things. And those other we're just going to do the dirty laundry. We're not going to talk about any of the good stuff. So who holds the historian's account? Uh, the, the business of history. You, you guys are in charge of educating young people about yeah. the truths and the, the non-truths, the, the questions that we need to ponder. Who is responsible for holding historians responsible? Well, historians, we, we're fortunate. We can pretty much do whatever we want in the classroom. The stuff that we publish, it does have to be peer-reviewed. Somebody does have to kind of say, all right, this is, this is worthwhile. This makes a contribution. But again, when you're preaching to the choir, you know, even though this might be something that's unpopular, and again, you can kind of, when you're set to publish a book, they may ask you, well, who, who should we submit this to to review it? You know, pick your friends. You say, yeah, this guy here, this individual over at this school, and that's who they sent it to, and it's, it's going to be a rubber stamp. So, yeah, there isn't as much uh, oversight. Uh, there's no Jim Jordan. Uh, kind of watching over academics, if you will. Is it fair criticism for someone like me to say historians or academia in general lack diversity? I'm not talking about religion or race or sex, or I'm, I'm talking about diversity of thought. Yeah. In other words, I believe this about Jefferson. I believe that about Jefferson. Is it is it fair criticism to say that academia has become a little more monolithic yeah. than the American people deserve? Yeah, monolith- almost clicky. And so if you're explain if, there, Dr. If, Bo, if you're the the iconoclast, if you're kind of saying something, you know, I'm I'm an Andrew Jackson scholar. There's not many people who admit that they like and that they study Andrew Jackson. You know, 30, 40 years ago, I'd have had a seat at the table. You know, there there were lots of individuals who wanted to study Andrew Jackson. Now it's now you're a bad guy. It's almost like there's something, you're stuck, there's something wrong with you if you like and want to discuss Andrew Jackson. So again, right, if you kind of if you drink the Kool Aid and kind of you know, reiterate and go down the same road that a lot of those are going, hey, you're, you're fine. You're going to get favorable reviews. Uh, you'll get some You'll get some nice perks, some nice benefits. From it. Again, if you want to march to the beat of your own drummer, then you, you might get, you're not going to get the plum assignments, if you will. So what sort of debates do happen in academia? I mean, you would be in the historical field. I mean, you got economics professors. Oh, you've yeah. got, um, you know, art, liberal arts over sure. here and uh, business over there. Um, I'm asking to kind of carry us inside uh, the world that that some of us believe is a bit too one-sided. I want to be fair-minded here. I mean, Bolt's. I mean, Bolt's proven to me that he is a very um, moderate and mainstream um, sort of historians, and and I mean that sincerely. Um, but but in all honesty, we believe that academia leans uh, heavy to the left. To the yeah. left. How do how do how does academia hash through some of its issues? Well, I, I was fortunate kind of when I came up, I had some older historians who kind of took me under their wing. And so they were more World War II era veterans, just more conservative, tr- traditionalists. A lot of other, I could have fallen under the wing of individuals who were heavily involved in the 1960s, the, the protest movements. And perhaps you know, I wouldn't be talking about, uh, you know, saying nice things about President Trump. We you know, would be saying things that somebody else uh, had been saying uh, for many, for many, many years. So again, a lot, again, a lot of it's just, there's no right or wrong way. A lot of we interpret the past. We look at the same evidence, and it may be clear cut for me, but you may look at the same dogma and say, "Well, no, no, this is what Jefferson meant." Anyway, we've said this before. Jefferson is the the most fascinating guy because he writes something maybe crazy or radical early in the morning. He talks to James Madison, and then Madison kind of talks him off the ledge, and then Jefferson writes another letter to somebody else later in that same day completely contradicting or reversing what he'd said 
earlier, just a few hours before. So again, Jeff, these guys are they're fascinating figures to try and figure out what makes them what makes them tick. And as a historian, when you go into an archive or a library, and you get to hold in your hand a, a Jackson, a Jefferson, a Madison letter, you get to make a. I mean, you can read. There, most of these are published in volumes. But when you have one of the actual letters, Thomas Jefferson had this in his hand over 200 years ago, and it, it gives you chills. It's a it's 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 a nice gig, a nice perk. Is it fair to say that some of the prestigious universities uh, have have bought into wokeism yeah, more probably. so than some of the mainstreams? I mean, I, I'm thinking about Francis Marion's a great university, um, University of South Carolina Clemson. I mean, that, those sure. would be universities we're most familiar with. But I mean, we all c- kind of suspect that Harvard's a cut above, Yale's a cut <laughs> above, Stanford, Duke, some of these. Uh, yeah, University yeah. of Virginia. We're talking about Jefferson a second yeah. ago. No, um, the elite, University of Virginia school. is a kind of an elite, prestigious oh, yeah. university. Why? Why does? Why do we suspect some of those prestigious universities lean further left than some of what I'd call the mainstream uh, higher education yeah. institutions? It, it, no, it's an excellent question, and nobody probably knows why. It just kind of came out of the ether at some point. And it's like, well, hey, you know, you if if you want to get along, if you want to move up to the top, this is how the the majority, and eventually it just kind of reached a, a critical mass, whereas if you were a conservative or somebody who didn't toe that party line, you're not going to get your foot in the door. So there's probably a lot of people who've maybe modified, changed their opinions of their politics, or maybe they're just kind of lying just so they have a seat at the table. And again, if you get it, it's, it's very prestigious to, to teach at these institutions. It's a very nice salary uh, as well. So, you know, you, you don't bite the hand that feeds you. It's simple survival. You mentioned Madison a second ago. What is the relevance of the Federalist Papers? <laughs> well, for, from time to time, they pop up. Uh, if you remember during the impeachment of Bill Clinton, they were going back to the Federalist Papers trying to figure out if what Clinton allegedly did uh, warranted if this was a high crime or a misdemeanor. But again, the these are the sort of the, the seminal documents. If you want to know what the founding fathers were thinking, particularly Madison, Hamilton, in John Jay, it's right there in the Federalist Papers. It's how they essentially envisioned the government to work. And in some ways, we've we followed their example. In other ways, we've greatly gotten off the rails. But was it strictly commentary, or was there a ratifying, formalizing these documents? I mean, we've we got a constitution. Sure, it came right? out of it. They, they, they accomplished their goal to convince the people, mostly of New York, that there was nothing they had to fear from the Constitution. And so New York barely ratified it. It was a 30 to 27 vote. Uh, so, again, just a swing of a couple of votes. And if New York says no, New York's a very big populous state, kind of right smack dab in the middle. If New York says no, the whole thing could have unraveled. So without the Federalist Papers, we may not have had uh, the great republic that we have. So you can't underestimate their importance. Weird question. If you, If someone listening to your voice knows very little about early American history, but are motivated to go find out more. In other words, they, they've always believed the company line on Jefferson and slavery, and they've heard your accounting. Uh, there, there are a lot of things that we, you know, we, we're speculating on. Yeah. But if someone were to begin a journey, where would you suggest they begin that journey to find out more about early American history? Well, again, try, try and take a course. There's lots and lots of books. You go to, go to Barnes & Noble. Just a basic U.S. history textbook. Uh, don't get a Howard's in. But again, a lot of this, this is some good academic ones. And you, you just kind of look around. Go on Amazon. Go and look at look at the reviews. And you get a lot of people saying this is a good, a fair, and a balanced one. Uh, you'd probably in good shape. 
Search around the internet. There's all sorts of podcasts, YouTube channels of guys who are explaining major events in 10, 15 minutes. You can kind of get just a, a Cliff Notes version, if you will. And again, if you're in Florence, South Carolina, take a class with me or maybe mm-hmm. you just come and sit in. Do adults some take classes. your class. I've had, yeah. Mm-hmm. People like to sit in. And so, yeah, they, they can audit them. And so, yeah, come for the history, stay for the jokes. <laughs> Come for the history, stay for the jokes. Guy from Buffalo, 843-661-0937 is our number. Do we have a call? Yes, we do. Okay. Let's, um, David, you're let's, on the let's air. Put, let's put Bolt's job in jeopardy. There we go. You ready? Good morning. Well, I was just going to say, if you're going to start out looking for some history, check the museum Thursday night. Ah, uh, yes. Great Francis Marion thing going on there. Good advertisement. Thank you for that. Yes, Thank you, David. Nice Appreciate yes. that. Yeah. I mean, but, but does it, I mean, it, it doesn't. It doesn't give you any more creative liberties because you work at a school named after a revolutionary <laughs> war hero in general. But but it's got to I mean it's got to inspire you oh, sure. to be an early American historian at Francis Marion University. I'm a rock star amongst some of my fellow. I get to teach the American Revolution at a school named after someone who fought, and there's not that many historians who can who can say that. So yeah, it's, it's 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 a heavy burden, but it's a burden I, I like to bear and I, I take it seriously. And you would you would agree it's a journey worth encounter. I mean it's it's a journey worth embarking upon to find yeah. out more about about early American history. I just I I, I love the I love just the anecdotes, the the humorous, the funny stories, the the stories that make these individuals human that even though this is a powerful politician and important military figure, yeah, they're just like us. They they say some weird things, they make some mistakes there's and again that's what I'll, I'll i'll regale a lot of my students with just these little funny humorous stories and i wish they would remember more but sometimes that's the only thing that they you know they remember oh andrew jackson want to hang his vice president so something's better than nothing <laughs> that's something to be known for let's go to the phone someone's there mike in darlington you are on with dr will bolt oh uh, uh dr uh dr bolt i really appreciate your uh, comments and enlightening us on the uh history but I'm wondering uh, about the institution of slavery, which has been with us for millennia, and sure. we can't seem to get rid of it because <laughs> we have these children that are brought across the border now, yeah. and and they're they're just lost. And how do you explain uh, our the populace uh, putting up with that at this point in history? Where they lost eighty five thousand children, they don't know where they went once they came across the border. No, it's 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 a problem, and it's who would have thought that? Right, we, we thought we would have resolved this issue at the end of the Civil War, but clearly, right, there's still some work that needs to be that needs to be done. And as for a historian, it's it's kind of mind boggling that well, no, this this we we still have this issue of slavery. This is it, it's dead and buried. But unfortunately, no, it's it's still right in front of us, and it is a it's a problem. It's a it's a pox on all of us that needs to be resolved. Because the founders were not the only men dealing with history. I mean, dealing with slavery. I mean, slavery <laughs> slavery was and still is a global phenomenon. Right, I mean, this, yeah. we're talking about slave labor and child work camps and all these Throughout other the um, sorts of things. Is somebody on the phone? Yep. Let's go there. Sam in Hartsville. Good morning, Sam. Yes, Doctor Bolt. Can you hear me fine? I got you, sir. Good morning. Yes. Um, what a lot of people don't understand is we lost you, Sam. I'm sorry. Come back. Re- repeat. I mean, you came back there, but we lost you for about three or four seconds. Hello. Are you there? Yeah, we're, we're here. We can hear you now. We couldn't hear you for a moment. Yeah. Um, 
what a lot of people do not understand in the late 1700s, early 1800s, not all landowners had slaves. There were indentureships. And those indentureships, um, you know, allowed a person to be held until the age of 25. And then they were considered to be free men. Um, one thing on the indentureships that I've never understood, and maybe you can answer this question, is that the indentureships required that the people that owned those people under the indentureships, they were to be fed, they were to be yeah. housed, they were to be closed. But they were also educated to a cipher level of three. Do you know what uh, a cipher level of three was? You got you got me there. That's a term, yeah, that is not is not on my radar. And so, yeah, I'm not, I'm not one who studies educational practices. I'm just more of a traditional political guy. Uh, indentured, right? A lot of, as you said, maybe as many as two thirds of the colonists who came over. Here, came over as indentured servants, meaning somebody would pay for their voyage across the ocean, then they would have to work uh, for a period of three to seven years. And then once they were done, they received, it was called their freedom dues. It'd be some some clothes, maybe some land and some seeds, so they could then be a farmer here. Uh, but sorry for the, I'll, I'll have to take a look and see if I can find anything on that. Thank you, sir. Appreciate yes, sir. that. I both appreciate your time. As always. Thanks, guys. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of seconds. 843-661-0937, last hour of this Tuesday morning. We've jumped around a bit, as we always do, especially during the summer months. I mean, this is a bit different. We've got a presidential uh, primary, both Republican and Democrat, that a lot of people are paying attention to. I would argue in July, people aren't paying attention to much of anything. I mean, in all honesty, we've checked some of our internet listenership, our streaming numbers, or you know, a shadow of their former selves because people are, you know, on vacation. They're out of a normal routine. Uh, they're more flexible with their schedule. For whatever reason, um, they're just not paying as close attention. Uh, it gets back about mid-August. You really sense when school starts back and people get in a normal routine. Got a, a GOP debate August 23rd, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, we're deciding who's on the stage and who's not on the stage. Uh, and I'm talking about the main stage, <laughs> mind you, Rev. The main um, uh, stage. I what you mean. So, um, <laughs> so some of the GOP presidential candidates are scrambling to raise enough funds. Uh, I think 40,000 individual donors is required to be on the main stage of the GOP debate in August. Fox News Radio's Tanya J. Powers is in our nation. Excuse me. She's in New York City. Um, not our nation's capital, but rather our economic epicenter. And um, Tanya's with us this morning. Good morning, ma'am. How are you? Good morning. And to be fair, it was the Capitol at one point. It was. Yeah. You're right. They've got a statue <laughs> to show. I've seen the George Washington statue, <laughs> I think, somewhere down that way. But, but, but Tanya, these, um, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's kind of a, I don't want to say a weird time, but, but it is a time that a lot of the general public aren't as in tune. Uh, so some of the party activists, obviously, I mean, they, they're well aware of this debate in August, but there has been... Um, there, there has been some thresholds in place because of the crowded field that allow you to be on on the debate stage. How are the candidates doing in raising the funds with the individual uh, donors that allow to participate or not? Well, you, as you mentioned, you know the the RNC, the Republican National Committee, has made those qualifications about the donors. Forty thousand 
unique donors from across the country, they have to have those. Um, that is new. The polling data, polling criteria is not new. That has been, that, that sort of was rumored back in 2016 when you had like an entire like raft of people <laughs> trying to get on the debate stage and they had to cut it into two debates, remember? And polling criteria is what they used to decide who got on the debate stage or who, you know, uh, was in the in the other debate, the kids' table debate, as, as a lot of people like to refer to it, uh, because there were just so many people in the, in the candidate field. This time, it is also going to have the polling criteria. They also have to sign a loyalty pledge, by the way, to support the GOP's eventual nominee. So those are the differences this time. That debate is uh, the first one is for the GOP is August 23rd. So some of the candidates have decided to get a little creative with this. One of them, Vivek Ramaswamy, who has he's a biotech entrepreneur, he has a plan that he's already launched, uh, I think, last last month. Um but he uh, is allowing people who raise money for his campaign to keep 10% of what they take in from other donors. Um, so if that sounds like a, a commission, <laughs> you know, that's it's kind of it kind of sounds that way, honestly. It, you know, you you fundraise for him and you get to keep 10% of what you take in from other people. Um, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum is offering gift cards. His is a twenty dollar Master or Mastercard or Visa gift card in return for campaign donations for of as little as a dollar. I think they have like fifty thousand of those gift cards, maybe. Um, and of course, that will you know boost his numbers for the those unique donors that they're looking for. And then Miami Mayor Francis Suarez has has gotten some help from the sports world. He, of course, Argentine soccer legend Lionel Messi is joining, you know, Miami's team, Inter Miami, right? And it's a big deal that he's going to be playing here. Um, so the mayor asked people during a speech on Sunday if they would consider making a dollar donation to get him on that debate stage and that everybody who did that would be entered in a chance to win front row tickets for Messi's first game, which is coming up Friday, which he plays for the first time for Inter-Miami. Um, so I'm sure there's you know, no shortage of people who are probably interested in, in getting in that raffle because those tickets are not cheap, by the way. But, Tanya, doesn't this, and I'm asking you to give an opinion, and that's unfair to you, but, but I've done it before. Um, <laughs> doesn't this kind of cheapen the process, I mean, to me, it becomes salesy. It becomes a little bit, uh, you know, like, like winning a lottery or winning a contest. I mean, to me, politics should be, and I get that things are different. I mean, I understand, and, and I, you know, be, being a Republican, I'm part of, uh, of this difference, you know, but, but it just seems to me that, ah, that, that, that there's a certain expectation we should have of how we elect our political leaders uh, juxtaposed to how we conduct ourselves in in normal, polite society. I don't know. I, it is it, it concerns me about where we may be headed. You know, I mean, that's 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 not that's not something that I haven't already heard uh, in relation to this. You know, it's kind of. Uh, I think a lot of people have a lot of opinions about. Okay, just you know, how how should we conduct this? You know, what rules surround this? Um, you know, the big question I keep getting today is: Is any of this legal? <laughs> um, which that's a good question. I'm not a campaign finance expert. Um, I will just say that it is it is it is quite interesting that you know you've got these more uh, qualifications, like I said, that have been sort of placed on this. Um, you know, this is more than 
you used to have to do to get on the debate stage. You know, you used to just have to have a certain amount of polling um, numbers, and that was pretty much it. You know, you declared yourself a candidate. If you were polled well enough, you got in the debate. That was it. Um, now this has taken on, you know, a whole different look. And by the way, when you're looking at candidates who, you know, may have already been, I mean, there's some names who are probably not going to have any problem, you know, being on this debate stage. Of course, the former president, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, in just in the second quarter of this year, DeSantis took in 20 million in the second quarter. Um, 15.3 million, I believe, for the former president in the second quarter. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, 5.8 million in the second quarter. Um, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, 5.3 million in the second quarter. Um, if you look at the former Vice President Mike Pence's uh, haul, considerably less at this point. Again, remember he got in it much later than the rest of the of the candidates. Um, but he's, you know, he's going to have to get those those unique donors just like everybody else is. Very well explained, Tanya. Thank you for your time. Have a great day. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting that Pence has only raised about $1.6 million. Um, and, and, you know, this is, I mean, I, who am I to criticize the novelty of becoming, you know, a legitimate candidate? Because there's a novelty component here. You send a dollar, you get a $20 gift card. Uh, if you raise money, you get a 10% commission. Trump introduced this abnormality, right? I mean, th- th- there was a traditional way campaigns were run. And when Trump announced in 16 that he's running for president, it was a novelty. I mean, to the point that the New York Times covered it under the entertainment um, section. So who am I to say, uh, I'm kind of revisiting my critique, who am I to say that Ramaswamy didn't deserve to do it his own way, so to speak? Um, Trump did it his own way, and nobody expected him to end up. Yeah, it's pretty creative, you know, actually, I mean, if you it, think it, about it. Yeah, it is creative, but... Does it go against the the spirit of you know, they're, they're, showing the grassroots support that I think that benchmark well, I mean, is supposed to, to me? Supposed I, to do. I've always felt that elections are about ideas. Can I articulate my idea and vision in a way that gains enthusiasm of the folks that I need to take time out of their day, go vote, or write a check? That's winning hearts and minds. That's campaigning um, one hundred and one and. You know, I guess I'm romancing nostalgically about politics when I participated because I do believe that that when I ran for office in 04, 08, uh, 2010, I ran for a party chairmanship and won. Um, It was about uh, coming up with ideas and a vision and a set of concepts that you you try to find an audience that believed in similar things. And, you know, you kind of went on the hustings and you, you told your story. And you, you, you express what you believed in, and you hope to find a following out there. You hope to find a few amongst that following that could write a check. And I guess the Internet has changed that. Um, you know, 24-7 news cycles have, have changed a lot of that. But I think Trump, probably as much as anything, broke the mold for how we traditionally campaign. Uh, it is somewhat of an entertainment business now. And I think there's an entertainment component here that can't be completely dismissed. I don't think it's good for voters to choose the most entertaining guy as their, you know, leader. I think it's the guy with the best ideas and who you think can incorporate those good ideas into the government. But um, but but things change. Nothing static. I think politics is a bit like that. We were touching on uh, in the last break uh, with Dr. Bold about some of the um, 
some of the things that led to Trump. I think that is going to be such, I don't know that academia will have much interest in pursuing that, but it's going to be historically significant. I mean, history at some point in time will force us to, 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 to retrospectively look back and say, okay, what led to Cheeto Jesus? I mean, what led to this crazy guy? You know, what led to, you know, one of our major political parties believing this was uh, better than all the rest that were there and may do it again. I mean, Rev talked about, you know, you win in 16, you lose in 20, and you win again in 24, and there's a chance that happens. I mean, there's not, I mean, that's not unfounded. That's not out of the realm of possibility at all. Do the math. I mean, Trump was at 232. He wins Georgia. He's at 248. I mean, that there's a, you know, Georgia, excuse me, um, Florida and Ohio are red today. So whoever the Republican nominee is has a very legitimate chance to become president despite some of the mainstream media narrative. I mean, it's not at all unlikely that Trump wins. I mean, I think his chances are what? Look at the RCP average today. I mean, there's a uh, Trump's uh, Biden's at 34 percent. Trump's at 28 percent. So of all the people in the world. He's the second most likely to be elected president. And, I mean, put Trump and Biden on the playing field simultaneously, Trump's got a, 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 not just a puncher's chance, he's got much better than a, than a puncher's chance. But, but I, I do believe there has to be some intellectual curiosity about what led to Donald Trump. We had a big kind of a, a, you know, a, a somewhat of a disagreement about Jefferson and slavery. Josh sent me a video. Um, that, that explains why historically we're not telling as accurately as we probably should the story of Jefferson and his relationship with slavery. We know there's a confounding relationship there, but there's no question about it. But, but the mainstream narrative is kind of a soundbite. It's a bumper sticker, and it's much more complex than that. Well, I think when you hear Make America Great Again, it, it, what led us there? I mean, I wrote some things down during the break. I mean, this is back of napkin, um, you know, CEO pay, income inequality, NAFTA, uh, TARP, corporate capitalism, bank bailouts. I believe the day the federal government decided to bail Wall Street out. Now, now once again, I think there's a fair, uh, you know, hour-long radio segment to be done or podcast to be done about whether or whether or not the bank should have been bailed out. You know, the financial system was at the precipice of implosion. I mean, I, I get that. I mean, I understand. I think there's a very legitimate debate about what the government had on its plate and what it had to consider and and not consider. But but to believe that that didn't lead to some resentment toward uh, the haves. And, you know, I, I just think when you when you look at Trump, I mean, to me, he's a manifestation. And, and, I, and I've said it before and I'll say it again. As long as the donor class and the voters are somewhat in the same camp, it's tolerable. You'll get a George W. Bush. You'll get a John McCain. You'll get a Mitt Romney. I mean, the nominee of the party will, will kind of go along and get along. You, you know that the donors are at the front of the line, but you believe you're in the line. I mean, there's a, there, there's a, a kind of a commonality there. But, but all of a sudden, one day you wake up and your party's donor class or driving the agenda, and the agenda disenfranchises the majority of people who have historically voted for Republican conservative candidates, that relationship gets totally asymmetrical. And and some sort of bottom or bottom-up oriented revolution begins to take place. And and I'm not saying it's all about CEO pay. 
I don't have any idea what the CEO of Goldman Sachs should make or the CEO of Vanguard or, or, um, or BlackRock should make. I have no idea what to address income inequality. I mean, I'm a capitalist. I believe in the free market. I think the guy with the best widget deserves to make the most money. The guy that works the hardest deserves the highest compensation, NAFTA. I mean, I, I don't think NAFTA set out to intentionally create human carnage where our manufacturing base was, but it did. You know, TARP, I, I'm not a member of Congress. I don't know what it was like. I have no idea what, what, what the intricacies of international finance are. But, but our government at every turn seemed to side with not the average American. You've got the average American to consider, and you've got these corporate interest donors, the, 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 the ruling class. I mean, they're, they're, you know, the insiders, the establishment. I mean, there are a lot of ways to define those. And once again, I think when those relationships become asymmetrical, it's inevitable that somebody runs as a political disruptor and the public buys it. And, and I think Trump was, once again, um, kind of a manifestation of this asymmetrical relationship that is going to create political chaos for the next 20 or 25 years. I mean, I, I sincerely believe that this is the beginning of political chaos. Um, I, I guess the most unusual part of this, Rev, is the issues that Trump ran on and the reaction his voters had were more... <sighs> more liberal than conservative in nature. I mean, it, you know, um, I, I use the expression a lot, probably too redundantly. You know, the Republican Party was the least likely to be counterculturalist. I mean, that, that, you know, do you believe, when, when you look at the Republican base, do you see Woodstock, Bob Dylan, and Jimi Hendrix? Or do you see that with the Democrat base? And, and I think that's the, I mean, it's a, such a, a, an interesting and curious point of the Trump phenomenon that if Woodstock were held today, we'd have more Trump voters there than anybody. I mean, Bernie Sanders voters would be there, RFK voters would be there, but Hillary Clinton voters wouldn't. I mean, they're coastal elites. By and large, Joe Biden's wouldn't voters wouldn't be there. I mean, I understand you vote by default. You got a binary choice. There's a Republican and a Democrat. You don't like the, the Republican conservative orthodoxies, but Trump's not a conservative. I mean, Trump's not ideologically motivated or driven. I mean, I think he's a deregulator. I think he's a pro-business business guy. I mean, you would expect that somebody in the private sector made a lot of money, um, you know, building hotels and golf courses and, you know, wins and losses. I mean, you would expect that guy to not be very sympathetic about regulation, you know, or our, some sort of government oversight. I mean, you would expect him to say, nah, let's let the, the economy kind of take care of itself. But there's so much more to this. And, and I think when you look at Jefferson, historians are naturally inclined to, to, to be curious about, you know, because he was an intellect. I mean, he was, a, he was a political theorist. Trump's not an intellect. Trump's not a political theorist. But there is more intellectual understanding of what is happening or, or a lack of intellectual understanding, a lack of historically, curi historically being curious about why, what, what got us here. I mean, why did one political party say, yeah, to that guy? When, when all he said was drain the swamp, the game is rigged, make America great again. I mean, it was all about sound bites. It was all about bumper stickers. I mean, you put it on a baseball cap. I mean, give, give the guy credit. He knew that people could relate to make America great again. Now, that means different things to different people at different times. And, and once again, I'm, I'm just, this is back a napkin. I mean, I don't have any idea how much CEO pay contributed 
to, to, to Trump's rise. I have no idea what income inequality, NAFTA, TARP, corporate capitalism, bailouts, but I'm not a historian. I think at some point in time, serious historians need to consider the consequence of Trump getting elected while, while the most prestigious newspaper in America said it was a novelty and covered him as an entertainment article. I mean, that's how out of touch those who decide things normally, and I'm talking about normally, because, you know, historically they've whipped the conservative base in line. You know, John McCain's turns, Mitt Romney's turns, George W. Bush's turns, and, and the Republican primary voters said, I don't give a damn whose turn it is. I mean, I'm voting for this guy because I think he leads to disruption, and I think the world that I live in needs to be disrupted. Um, I've been out of favor, and my life has been somewhat out of favor with the body politic. You know, maybe this guy's a savior, maybe he's not, but he ain't like the rest. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Larry and Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. How you guys doing? Hey, Larry, how are you? All right. I'm just curious. You think this year, well, when the uh, elections come up, you think the uh, the major news outlets will be held accountable for their in-kind donations by bashing Trump and saying whoever the Democratic uh, nominee is, the greatest guy in the world? Thank you, Larry. See, I, I've got a theory on the media. I don't think the media hates America first. I think the media loves money. And I think they're the donor class. America first is not good for corporate capitalism. It's not good for crony capitalism. America first is kind of the antithesis of, right? I mean, it, it would be, I mean, it, it would be, I mean, I, I don't say it's the exact opposite. That, that'd, be, that'd be unfair. What, what is good for the American working class is probably not real good. Um, in other words, I, I was reading something the other day. Um, Walmart has 1.4 million employees. They had a pre-tax profit of $25 billion. Um, 40% of Walmart employees are on Medicaid. I mean, that's not good for America. Can we agree? I mean, I don't know what the solution is, but I mean, if Walmart has 1.4 million employees, they have a pre-tax profit of $25 billion and, you know, roughly one in uh, a little better than one in three of their employees is on Medicaid. I mean, that, that can't be good for the social fabric and economic well-being of the most powerful country on the planet. But it's good for Walmart because they get to keep more of their money. The taxpayer subsidizes uh, some of the health care. And I'm not picking a Walmart. They're not the, the Lone Ranger um, here. But I don't believe the media hates the American working class. I mean, I, Peter Strzok does. He made it well aware. But but that that would be the bureaucratic elites. Um, but, but, the, but the media needs to pay its bills. And there, there's not a there, there's not an advertising agency that has as a client the average American working class, right? I mean, we, we've not pooled our resources together and bought ads. I mean, there's there's a reason Meet the Press is brought to you by Boeing and McDonnell Douglas, and after that you hear you know the um the Zelensky counteroffensive in Ukraine that ain't working. I don't know if you saw that or not. In the New York Times. We'll touch on on that tomorrow. It's not working anywhere near as effectively as we were led to believe this would lead to Ukrainian success and victory. What, what I'm arguing, Larry, is the media is bought and sold. I mean, the media is corporations' mouthpiece. So they're carrying the water for um, the donor class because the donor class pays their bills. Um, that's my theory. I, I don't think the mainstream media, because they're liberal in nature, 
And, and liberalism tends to care and be sympathetic toward people whose lives didn't work out for whatever um, reason. And, and, you know, I think when you, when you really dig down deep, and, and I'll go back through some of these. I mean, when you look at CEO pay, income inequality, NAFTA, TARP, corporate capitalism, bailouts. I mean, what's good? that's just a break. I mean, if you gave me an hour, I could really elaborate on, on some of these issues that the body politic has become very involved in. Um, but, but, you know, in-kind contributions to political parties. I mean, I would argue the in-kind contribution is to advance an agenda that is in the best interest of their advertisers. I mean, that, that's the point I'm trying to make. Uh, pay attention to how much money Big Pharma spends on network and cable television. Pay attention to how much money, um, you know, just, just kind of pay. I mean, that, that's, they shape the narrative. I mean, it, it's not an independent media any longer. I mean, it, it's a media that has a bottom line. And enhancing the bottom line is what they're about. It's not about getting the news right. It's not about reporting the most important stories. It's about paying the bills and making a profit. And if Big Pharma's willing to pay, you know, I mean, I read something in daytime television, 20% of all revenue generated is from Big Pharma. <laughs> but if you're, if you're not working, then you're probably claiming some sort of ailment. And if you're claiming some sort of ailment, you, you believe that miracle drug that, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it, 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 to me, it's not very complicated. I, I think the media at some point in time in the last 25 years said, we're not in the news business. We're not in the honest journalism business. We're instead um, about the buck. And if we've got to choose uh, big corporations or the average American, we're going to choose the big corporations because they write big checks and they advertise on our show and networks. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Morning, David. You're on. Hey, good morning. Hey, here's some good news for you, Ken. Uh, the 2024 electoral map is different than the 2020 electoral map because mm -hmm. uh, Texas, they added a couple uh, electoral votes, uh, Florida, North Carolina, uh, states like California, New York, Illinois, Michigan, Pennsylvania. They lost electoral votes. See, now, that's the good part about people moving to Pauley's Island. They lose their electoral vote up there. So that I think you used a baseline number of 232. I think you're right, and I need to change that. I think it's two. That's what I was going to say. I thought it was 36. 237. Okay, okay. 237 is your baseline. So Georgia's got 16 electoral votes. That that would be the easiest one of those states to win. And it's just sad because you think about Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, when Trump won in 2016, that's the only time that uh, Republicans won since 1992. So it, that just, to me, just, I don't know. I, I, that's tough. And then Arizona, it, that's a Republican state. But you got Maricopa County there. But even those numbers, if I take 237 plus the 16 and 11, that don't get you there. So you got to find, like, Let's get you have maybe you have to make a deal with the guy up in New Hampshire. That's only four electoral votes. Uh, Nevada, that's all Clark County. Uh, so it, it's going to be interesting. And I'll leave you at this. I wish somebody, one of these candidates, was personalized some sort of uh, website or something that people could plug in how the inflation rate, the interest rate, and the gas price. And put a little calculator to it and say, okay, this is what it was when Trump was in, 
This is what it is now, and they can visualize how much money they have just flat out lost. But David, stick with, with me for uh, a second yeah. now. So you're saying, yes, I mean, I, I thought it was 36, but you're saying it's 37. So, 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 so the the same map. If the 2020 election were to repeat itself, Trump would have 237 instead of 232. Yes. yes so sir. if he yes. picks up Georgia, he gets to 253. Correct. Pennsylvania gets it. So he they can lose. He can lose Nevada, Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, and win Pennsylvania and be president of the United States. Absolutely. See and that, I've that's, said that before. That's right. I mean, that, and that's a big here, deal. Here's the problem, Ken. They, these people are like Fetterman. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. I mean, that, I mean, Pencil, I wouldn't put my eggs in Pennsylvania's basket. No, no like but that. but I but mean, if you but if you've got a hundred million to spend in Georgia and you only spend twenty million. You certainly like spending a lot more money in Pennsylvania, in Nevada, in Arizona, in Wisconsin, you know, in Michigan. I mean, that, the allocation of resources is going to lead to eventual oh, yeah. success. I, mean, that, I, I agree with you 100 percent, man. Uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't try to get Pennsylvania, but I wouldn't. I mean, you just can't count on Think about it, man. I mean, they voted for Fetterman. Yeah, it's the only state that Robert Cahaley said the Republican better be ahead by four percentage points because they'll – They'll figure out five percentage on their own, and, and, and I'll uh, the margin of victory too. They get in those. Uh, I'm gonna uh, use your term, collar county. All these collar counties outside of Philadelphia, they have gone so much more Democrat. I mean, they used to be sort of a neutral counties back in the day, but they really have got on board that uh, Democrat wagon. So I tell you, I wouldn't count on Pennsylvania. I hate to say that, but man. if you, but if you're, I mean, I, I, it's like we're sitting at a bar here. But if you're at two fifty three with Georgia, and you get Nevada and Arizona, that gets you to two seventy. That's got you win. I would be, I would be right now if I was a candidate. I'd be meeting with them housekeepers in in, in Las Vegas, uh, that culinary union. Man, I would be trying to court them. I'd be giving them flowers. I'd be taking out the trash for them uh, from their motel rooms. Uh, even even New Hampshire, and people don't realize that if Bush back in 2000 did not win New Hampshire, he wouldn't. That whole that whole thing would not have been around because uh, Florida, that whole Florida recount. If Bush had not won, that's the last time a Republican has won New Hampshire was in 2000. Think about that. How it deals with history. But I'd be up there courting that Sununu guy. I mean, you got to get every one of these things. I wouldn't count on Pennsylvania. I don't know how much money these guys got. Unless me and you going to go up there and, and, and ballot harvest ourselves. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't count on Pennsylvania. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. But see what, that's an interesting point. I need to break this down a little more. Try to do it um, today. So Nevada and Arizona. I, I think David, and I'll agree with him. I think David is arguing that you've got a better chance of winning Nevada and Arizona than you do Pennsylvania. But but you had to win Arizona, Nevada, and another state. Now, I mean, if the math's right, if it's 237, not 232, because of the uh, you know, the population migration and the exchange, you don't create new electoral votes. They just transfer from one state to another. And, I mean, if, they, if that math is right and Nevada and Arizona get you to 270, that that's a big deal, guys. I mean that that makes this now, now once again we're putting Georgia in the Republican camp. That that's why I've just always believed that Georgia is of monumental consequence. There is no way 
I'm not going to say this. I'll say the first part. I, 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 I'm going to say it all, but, but understand the degree of likelihood. There is no way a Republican wins the presidential election without Georgia. Is there any way he loses it without Georgia? I'm going to, with the electoral map shift, if 32 turns into 37 and you put Georgia in the category, the Republican candidate goes into election, uh, goes into the election with 253 in the bank. I mean, I, I'm assuming Georgia now. I mean, it, that's a big assumption, but, but Georgia is a trending, Georgia is more red than blue. I mean, I understand it's not red nor blue, but it's more red than blue. Despite what Herschel Walker did, and despite, I mean, Kemp proves to me that, that a mainstream Republican easily wins, wins Georgia. That's why you got to take the edge off, off Trump a little bit. Kerry Lake doesn't do that. Um, Vivek Ramaswamy doesn't do that. Brian Kemp does that. No question about it. Um, so you're at 253. You got Nevada at six, Arizona at 11. I mean, it, could, could the Republican go in to, to the, the general election focusing like a laser on Nevada and Arizona? That, those five, I mean, the shift of those five from 20 to 24 could be, a. I mean, that's obviously it's a big deal, but, but it could be, I, I'm almost willing to say, if the Republican wins Georgia, I mean, he can lose. I mean, there's no doubt about it, but, but he's got to lose Nevada, Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. I mean, you kind of put the, the Democrats, they've got to draw the inside straight. I mean, they, you know, I, I'm assuming Virginia stays blue and North Carolina stays red. The Republican, I mean, the Democrat has to win Nevada, Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. I mean, they can do it. I mean, there's no doubt about it. But, but how likely is that? I'll take my chances at 253. It helps. If the, if the Republican wins Georgia, I'll take my chances. I mean, if I were a betting man, my money's on Trump. Huh? That's a big deal. Those mm. five, that, that's, thank you, David. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few. See, I'm not convinced that David and I are right. I still believe. So when you, I mean, you don't create new electoral votes, right? I mean, you, you, you transfer right. they, they from one state around. to another. Right, let me ask you this, Rev. Is there any state that Trump won that lost an electoral vote? Yeah, I brought up the grid here that shows the change after the 2020 census. Uh, Ohio lost one, and West Virginia lost one. Okay, so uh, in in other words, if if tr if if Biden, let's hypothetically say, um, did any state Biden won pick up a an electoral vote? Um, Oregon and Colorado. Okay, were there's those two states. Not, did they win so, those? But but it doesn't matter if that if that net gain came from California. Or if that net gain came from New York, you see where I'm headed. Mm -hmm. that, that's kind of a um, that, that would be insider trading, so to speak. Yeah, it just you know, offsets. It, it, that's right. I, I don't think it's plus five. But Texas gained two. Okay. Florida gained one. Florida gained one. Uh, uh, North Carolina gained one. And Montana. Montana gained one. But you still got two Trump states that yeah. lost. You got West Virginia. And you've got Ohio. It looks like applied to the 2020 results, it's it's a three. It's it's Trump gains three, Biden loses three. So in, so instead of 232, it's 235, not 237. Right. See, 37 with Georgia, 
gets you to 53, now, 253. It's moving in the right direction, uh, obviously. But, but it takes a 10-year, you know, it yeah. takes the census every 10 years. I mean, there's no doubt about it that red states are gaining population and blue states are losing population. That's a macro trend. But I think what David and I failed to account for, maybe, I mean, I, I'll clean this up a bit, but but I don't think we counted on Ohio, Trump carries, loses one. West Virginia, Trump carries, loses one. So the plus five goes to a plus three is where I think we are. So if the, and you're saying they apply now, I mean, they're applying that metric and saying it would be 235 instead of 232. Plus three is what you're yeah, saying plus instead, three of a, three. Uh, instead of a plus five. We'll, we'll kind of delve into that a bit because uh, we're kind of heading down that road ever closer <laughs> uh, to uh, our first debate, primary and uh, election. Let's go to the phone. Bert in Florence. Good morning, Bert. Good morning. I, every time I'm listening to you lately, it sounds like you're trying to find a way to convince people that, yeah, Trump's you know popular, but he's not going to win the election. And I can't figure that out because everywhere he goes, you know, we go to a little bit nothing town and 50,000 people show up. And I know surely nobody can argue it was better under Trump. I mean, he made the economy better. He dropped un- unemployment down to nothing. They, he made where literally white people could talk about the real racism going on. He changed everything. So he surely can win a general election. I mean, that that's crazy to think that he can't. And I don't understand the logic in that. Who's saying that? You. I, I I've never you said ever, that. You go, okay. Trump's Trump's popular. Right? He's got all these people in the the uh, primary, but then a general election, you, it's almost like you'd rather see DeSantis. I, no, I, I would rather see Trump. I just think DeSantis gives the Republican Party a better chance to win. How? That's what I'm asking. Because he says he's he's far more popular today with independents than Trump is or has been. That that's and, just and a reality. I mean, that that's just where we are. Trump wins with the Tucker crowd. He wins with the Blaze media crowd. He wins with our crowd, you and I. I mean, you know, the universe we participate in every morning for for a period of time. I mean, he wins that overwhelmingly. But but there's a world out there that that don't care much for Donald Trump. That's just that's where we are, Bert. But you look at the overall numbers, and I'm gonna, I'm going to say this. And I, I've said this before. If the the Republicans would stop trying to make women into baby slaves, you know, I mean, y'all, the Republicans go, oh, we want government out of our personal business, but we want to get, you know, completely deep into um, every time there's a sexual encounter, there must be a citizen. And I mean, the numbers of that scares me to death. If Republicans ever get their way and all the pregnancies come to be a person, we'll be so overpopulated. I mean, the numbers are staggering. We'll continue this on the other side, Bert. We got to take a break. Not our break. We got to end this show. Enjoy your day. Appreciate you calling. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.